My name is Thomas Proffitt. I'm a filmmaker based outside Philadelphia, PA, and I'm looking to create a life for myself writing and directing films. On this podcast, I give my take on things as well as interview friends, filmmakers, and interesting folks about just about anything. You can find the full podcast catalog at ProfitableProductions.com backslash podcast. Profitable is spelled like my name with two F's and two T's. You can also find clips from my episodes there as well as my films. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Tom Profit Take. Welcome back to Tom Profit Take. This is Take 15C, Filmmaking Toolbox Number 1, How I Make Films from Idea to Final Cut, Part 3, Production. And uh, basically, at this point, you've ideally finished a good script. A script that you believe in, that not only you believe in, that people uh, that you trust, who you go to for feedback, uh, also believe in. And I think the the reason why I consider, like I mentioned, the reason why I consider I, I made this third part production, meaning post production, production and uh, or piece pre production, production and post production. It's that honestly, you you should have a a, a finished solid script before you even begin prep work on your film. Um, I I I mean I yeah it is technically pre-production to be writing a good script or to be writing a script but you should have that done before you get started this step um if you're somebody who's focusing on the steps that you should be focusing on in the sequence that you should be focusing on them and i I, this this is just wisdom that i've gathered from the best filmmakers that i look up to and and also it's it's things that when it's disobeyed it leads to a lot of shitty films um you know there's so many stories about uh, big budget films that are being made and uh you 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 know you wonder what the heck happened there and often you hear oh well there were rewrites last minute if there's rewrites it wasn't solid or they fucked with it you know if you have to if, if there is people fucking with the script in major ways in the middle of production it's a red flag you know and it could be because a studio exec thinks that they have you know they're they're using their power to do it so they can have their influence on the film or i i mean i don't know how it really works because i've never been in that situation luckily yet um but i'm just like i'm i'm very protective about the finished script like if there's anything to make me think that a, there's going to be a major change in the script, production's getting haunt, halted. But if I'm going to be making something, the script is locked. Like there might be small changes to certain lines or or like a character's name or or certain small details could change. Maybe maybe a, an extra moment or shot or scene could be introduced. Like we might have this idea of what if we get this extra scene shot just to see what happens. But more often than not, it's not necessary because if you wrote a good script and you've been through the ringer in terms of getting people's opinions on it and, and really gauging your own feelings on it, you can get to a point where the script feels pretty solid, I think. And honestly, I think that's from what I know, it's it or what I 
I've seen it. It seems like that's the case with like a lot of great film and filmmakers, like great films. And, you know, I'm, I'm assuming that's pretty much what's the case when it comes to like Nolan films. I could be wrong. Um, but I, I, I mean, I'm pretty certain that, uh, there's a freaking fl fruit fly down here. Sorry. Um, that's just, I feel like a lot of great films, they have a pretty locked script when they're going to make it. Now, yeah, Jaws didn't. Um, but I personally prefer a great Tarantino or Nolan film over Jaws, even though even they will say probably Jaws is one of the best films ever. But I still prefer their films. Um, I love Jaws. Don't get me wrong. But if I had to choose, I'd say one of their films. because And I feel like they probably have a more locked in thing. Now, when you do a film where you're kind of allowing yourself some leeway in terms of, you know, you don't have a finished script, you're rolling the dice. You really are. Now, yeah, you could, you could roll the dice. Sorry, I'm trying to get this fucking, fucking fly out of my face. Really, right when I'm recording. You, you could be rolling the dice and, <laughs> Jesus, you could be rolling the dice. Jesus, it's still there. All right, I'm sorry. You know, I'm going to cut that part out. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just I'm probably going to cut forward into this because there's a gnat going after me. Um you could be it's on the table now. Oh, did I kill it? Well, uh I'm just going to keep going. Uh basically, you could be rolling the dice in a big way. Um it could you could win. You could win out on it because when you you know, if you go the improvised route and maybe maybe I'll change my mind on this. So maybe I'll I'll completely change my stance on this and be like I'm open to it. Um, but I feel like if you, if you don't go in with, you know, some solid planning and preparation, you roll the dice and you, you, you most, most of the time you'll lose. Um, now sometimes you'll, you'll win big because you're going to allow serendipity to creep in and, and, and things that work that you didn't anticipate that are hard to imagine until you're there and filming. Um, and it's op it's good to be open to those things, but you can be, I think you can be open to them with a good script and, and not stray too far from the script. It's hard to do, but it's something that I, I, it seems like the smartest move to me. Um, but yeah, so you finish the script, ideally one that you and others like, and you feel confident. Um, if you had zero ideas while writing about it, how you want to make it as a film, which is unlikely, that's okay because we figure that out now. Earlier in this podcast, the previous two parts, I did, talked a lot about different things, including, um, you know, if you feel like you're like, you're not, if you feel like you're, you're out of it or, or things are, you know, you're, you're not, you're feeling, I guess, lethargic or something's just off or you just don't feel like you're on the right path. Or you're just feeling just, I don't know, if you're not feeling like things are going right, sometimes it's because you're focused on a step further ahead than you should be. And if you were focused completely on developing your vision when you should have been focused on coming up with a good story and then characters and a good outline and a good script, you know, if you were thinking about the script before when you should have been thinking about the outline, you know, or if you've been writing the script before you were figuring out the outline, that's a bad move, I think, personally. Um, if you, same for if you're developing the film before you've finished a good script or a good outline, 
you know you you know that's that's it's it's the trickle down effect where if you're not putting all of your effort and and discipline and and power into the current step you should be on to get the best results if you're honest with yourself and you and you're analytical and and strategic about the process and in what gets the best results you 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 know it's going to lead to half-assed results down the line and and that's true of this if you focused all your efforts on this stage while you should have been working on your your creativity and your your writing and, and or the making the script before you reach the development of your script or i get or not creativity and writing but, but like writing the script and doing the outline and all those things if you're focused on this too much then you aren't creating a good film likely that's that's it's very likely um not always but it's very likely but you know it's it's a it's another thing to be focused on the film the script entirely but but still as you're doing that you're having ideas for later down the line you're they're coming to you that the, these ideas come to you about you know, it'd be this would be really cool if it was shot this way, but you're not you're not married to it. You're not married to anything at this point of the process, this later part of the process yet, until we get to this now. Meaning, you finished a good script. You got a script that's good. It's solid. People like it. You like it. You feel like you did your best with it, and you want you're ready to make the commitment to make a great film out of it. So you've reached this point. This. If you had, like I said, if you had no ideas on how to make the film, which is unlikely because you're just going to, you're a brainstorming machine. If you've made a good script, you've probably had plenty of ideas on how to make it really cool as a film. Um, and it might have came to you because you wanted to do it a certain way to make it a cool film. Keep that in mind. I mean, you keep that in mind all along the way. But, and here we are, we're at that point. And now, you know, if, if you, if you skipped the step of making a good script and you focused on the end, you know, the execution, instead of finishing a good script, you focused on, you know, how am I going to develop and turn this into a film? You're going to get lethargic here. But if you did all the work on making that good script, when you get to this point, you're going to learn this is just as grueling of work to do. There can be. And this stage is where you put in the work to come up with your vision. We're going to take the keys of creativity, of the th of things we've talked about so far, and we're going to use those tools, the tools of writing, the tools of brainstorming, of creativity, of creating ideas and, and writing, or through, through power naps, or just on the spot, you're going to be putting that all into coming up with your vision. Now's the time to do it. And uh, everything everything I'm going to be talking about here in this part, part three, or take 15C uh, on production, is, is all the tools that I have at my disposal that I've learned have been helpful for me in developing ideas on how to shoot my films, how to direct them, how to light them, how to do everything, how to edit them, how to cut them. Everything I'm going to be talking about here is just a toolbox on everything of the production, of the nature of production. Um, but it's okay if you had no ideas and up to this point on how to do that stuff. Because here is where we, we fill in the blanks before we even go to shoot anything. Um, so, yeah, so 
if you had any zero ideas on while, while writing, how do we want to make it as a film? Unlikely, it's unlikely. That's okay because we figure out the vision here. Uh, utilizing writing and creativity and everything we mentioned before. So I'm reiterating everything we created, we mentioned before. We're going to use it to develop your vision. And I'll give you the toolbox I'm currently aware of for developing and executing the making of a film that gets that gets the best results. So these tools that I'm going to be pitching to you and giving to you, they're in the form of work you can do. All of these tools are just work. That's why you should have put in effort into every step of the process when you should have been working on that step of the process. It was work then and it's work now. I guarantee you the things we like from our favorite films or our favorite filmmakers are the results of hard work. The obstacle is the way, like I mentioned before. So you want to identify the 20% of the work that gets 80% of the results you want. And right now, I'll give you mine. So, and this is a, the quote, there's a quote, e, the hard work creates an easy life. Easy work creates a hard life. And I mean, like I mentioned, you work, you don't put in the work on every, in the step of the process that you're on, that you should be on. The preceding steps, the trickle down effect is that things just get harder. Much like picking, you know, you know, picking the easy part of the problem to solve first makes the harder problems even harder if it's an integrated problem. And filmmaking is an integrated problem in and of itself. Um, and that's not that's not just true of stories, that's true of the entire filmmaking process. So so uh, if you've, hopefully if you've followed what I've said and you've done it, you've done the hard things, the things you're supposed to focus on first. All right, now I'll shut up and stop reiterating this point I've said a million times, which is choosing your battles and knowing and picking, you know, you know do it, choosing the right sequence in which you pick your battles. Um, so, uh, let's see, so you want to identify the 20% of the work that gets 80% of the results. And right now I'll, I'll give you mine. Uh, I haven't, so I haven't used all of these tools together yet. Actually, I was planning before to, to use these all on my feature film, but lately I've been learning a bunch of these I'm going to probably not use, but I have used much of them. Um, the tools are, I'll go, I'll go through them. Uh, so here, here's the first one. I call it the Chi map. It's something I can, it's a name I completely invented. Um, what is it? It's a way to utilize writing for developing ideas for how to shoot your film. I recommend trying this for a short film at least once. Basically you read your entire short film or your, your entire film scene for scene by scene. You read the first scene. And then you write about it. And then uh, you read the second scene and you write about it. You just keep doing that. Um, and after like, the and, and if you, yeah, and then and basically then eventually you, you come back, you do that for every scene and you might want to, you know, write, do, you do, do a first draft as you go through, well, Yes, uh, I'm not sure. Because I you want to do usually I like doing one like a first draft all the way through, but I'm not sure how I would do this now. Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, I mean, you could just go through the entire thing for suit through several writing sessions as a first draft for each scene. You write about each scene as you go through it, and then you revise that. You revise that thing about each scene. Um, 
And it's, you can write anything, write anything you can think of about how to make that scene, how, how you want to light it, how you want to shoot it, how, you know, how you want to, how you want to, what, what shots, you know, what, what, what's the logic behind the shots? What's the, anything, what's the performance? What's, what's the scene about anything? It can be, it can be abstract. Um, and then you, you, you go back, you read back through it. Like it's a first draft of a script and you, all the scenes, and then you re you revise each one, each thing you wrote about each thing. And you, you kind of do the writing process and like, like a script, but for this, and you develop your ideas on that scene. Um, and then once you've done that for all scenes and you've revised each thing about each scene, then you go back, then you don't even have to reread them all. You can then do it for the entire film based on all of your dice, your ideas collectively. And it's all in your bones at this point. I did that for feeding the fire and it led to me shooting it in a way where every time the character was moving in the right direction, meaning he was moving towards, you know, breaking out of the friend zone and moving towards his fears. And, and he, it, it, he basically, we, we had him facing frame, right? So I was looking frame, right? And when he was when he was moving the opposite direction of where he should have been going, if he was being selfish or he was doing something the wrong way, he was he was looking frame left. And we I, sh I made sure we shot it that way. Particularly, there was one scene we, we had to reshoot because things just got all muddled. And, and you know, we, we tried doing all too many things and, and it got things got lost in translation. And I was in the scene and I wasn't thinking too heavily, like from a bird's eye view. And um, when you're acting and directing you know, sometimes you, you, you have to suspend your analysis or your critique of the scene to the, to the people watching it and work and help and helping you, assisting you from behind the scenes. And if they don't see the vision you're doing, if you don't communicate it correctly, then things can get messed up. And that's, that's partly what happened. Also, um, we had to, we 86, some things midway through the shoot because we didn't have, it, it wasn't going to work. And I just didn't, I wasn't, I was I just wasn't thinking completely and when you're acting and directing for the first time it's it's a drain it's a and it or regardless when you're acting and directing regardless it you're occupying you're taking a a huge section of your brain and occupying it with acting and a, sl a small sliver of it is left for directing and doing all that stuff and I've only got I've gotten slightly better over time at doing all of it um together I don't think I'm going to do it for my feature film, though. Uh, I considered it, but I'm. I think I need to focus on performances, unless I realize soon that every time I direct when I'm not acting, I suck at it, <laughs> which is a thought I had recently. But I don't know if that's true. Um, I think it was just something else I was doing wrong. Um, like I was, I, I was, you, I was over directing. I was, I was giving directions that made it stiff or something, and so I don't. Maybe, but maybe there's some truth to I need to like occupy myself when I'm making films with with something so I don't over direct. I don't know. I, I I'm gonna see if that's true soon. I, I have a feeling it's probably not though. Um, but yeah, you know, it's important to spot what you're doing wrong and figure it out. Um, so Chi Map, that's one thing. I don't think I'm gonna do that for my feature film. Um also directing actors prep it's there's a book called judith there's a book called directing actors by judith west and it's the black and white no black it's the black and red one the white and black one is is the second one it's more supplementary material i i recommend the first one but i would recommend using it once or twice for short films and 
honestly kind of grow out of it probably um unless you're doing dr strictly dramas i tried using that for comedy and it backfired recently um that's what was that's actually what i was mentioning where when i i felt like i overdirected what i had done is i'd done a lot of prep work based on the exercises in that book and i've been toting that book to a lot of podcast guests lately and it's because i used it back on rusty spade and it worked really well for that i thought and i got you know recently people were like yeah it was very theatery like it was good and i'm like yeah yeah i'm gonna do that again and uh, i used it for comedy and i just i uh, what I ended up doing was I developed these really complicated backstories while doing those exercises that and the backstories were funny I came up with like we had these ridiculously this whole conspiracy fucking thing we came up with and I'd, I you know how like I, I honestly though to be fair to myself how the fuck was I supposed to know what would happen I, I thought if I do this work on this film I bet the performances are going to be on fire. Like, I bet it's going to be on a whole nother fucking level. It was the opposite. Um, when we introduced backstories where, you know, this character was trying to kill everybody or this character was trying to, or they, or, but they were integrated backstories where all the characters, like their relationships were defined and the actors could understand what they were, their motives were and why and what their backstories were, their history. And uh, I think I was just way too creative about it. And what ended up happening, oddly enough, was that become became the 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 focal the focal point of the comedy. And it was no longer about the scene we were shooting. It was no longer about the jokes in it. So um, that happened, and um, so I'm trying to come back from that uh, next. I, I reshot that com. We reshot the comedy sketch, and we basically were like. I, I basically told everybody, look, everything I talked about before, all the directions I gave you before, cut it. Just it's gone. It's done. We're not using that. We're going to find out. I don't know what I don't know what works, but we're going to find out what it is. And I thought that, I thought that was a pretty good strategy. And, and I think it, it did lead to things being funnier this time around. Um, although I I did show it to my little sister. Everybody else thought well, most people thought it was funny. Um, I had somebody who had, get, had get some good feedback on terms in terms of what I could have done better um, in terms of grounding it, and I'll get into that. But um, I think my my little sister was like, "This isn't your best work." <laughs> her and her fiance were like, "This isn't your best work. We've seen better." And I'm like, "All right, I, I appreciate having people who are honest with me." Um, so uh, I gotta fix that. I gotta improve that. Um, I think I'm gonna. I think my next step, and this could change. I don't know. We'll find out. But my, my best guess is what to do next when I go to direct my next thing, which is probably going to be like a, a, a one minute short um, with with uh, my friends or two one minute shorts is to go for not absurd characters because I, I tend to write absurd stories, normal characters. And and, and uh, uh, what I mean by that is if if anybody's if you're listening, there's a comedy sketch I did call it's on my website. It's called Ghost Hunter, like the world's worst ghost hunter. I feel like that was the most grounded in terms of like performances. We, we were playing. We weren't over drama, dramatizing it. What happened with that comedy sketch was we had we had done 
so many takes of the entire thing to get like just from start to finish that we were exhausted. I, I, I think that's what actors feel like when they're doing a David Fincher film, when they're doing 30 or 60 takes. It's just they get exhausted and then it becomes about just doing the work and putting it and going through going through it, you know, over and over and over again, putting in reps, repetitions, kind of like writing, you know. But in acting case, it's you're you're stripping away all the artifice. You're stripping away all the performance, the acting, the the playing it up, the dramatizations, and it and then it becomes bare bones. And it then it just at that point it becomes you're just saying the lines to the other person, like all of the exhaust. Like you're exhausting the actors to the point where they're just talking to each other, but they've done it so many times that they're so good at it. And they're so fast at it. And and it's just it's just immediate. It's automatic. And there's something really cool about watching that. Plus, it's really cool seeing that when it's like it's very subtle because they've had all the actor, actor uh, dramatizedness, the, the drama-ness of the, the, all the drama, the over dramatizations that an actor puts into like a role or a performance have been sucked out because of all the takes they've done. I think there's something amazing about that. And I think, you know, I, I was hoping I wouldn't get attached to doing things that way, but I might start doing things that way. But, or at least I think for my next things, what I'm going to focus on is the the closest I can get to that within my means, which is I want to, on each take, I want to have the actors before the take starts, start either improvising or having a conversation about themselves. Or like, like just or talk, asking each other about them, each other, you know, like I'll tell the actor, all right, you, you, you ask him or her about like them, like how their day was or, or anything. And this is based on a Dustin Hoffman method from his, from his master class, And, and then when I, and you just keep going. And then when I say go, or I say run the scene or, or run the lines or, or, or just run, go from, don't change anything about what, how you're talking, go from that into the scene into the lines, saying the lines to each other, doing, you know, doing the scene, but like, you're not making it work in quote unquote, you're not, you're not doing anything other than talking to this actor as you would normally as yourself. And I want to, I want to kind of strip back towards that. I want to kind of try doing that because I feel like that's more grounded. That feels more normal, like a normal person talking. And I think that's what would make things funnier is if they're not trying to be funny. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out what that means. And I thought I did going into this last sketch. And I'm like, no, I don't know what it means anymore. I thought I did, but, I, but that doesn't work. What would work is just not trying to play things up so much. Just just say the lines to them like, like I'm talking to you right now. I'm just like, I, if, something, if, it, if something gets dramatized, it's by accident. If, if you're talking to this person and you're just talking normally and if you're listening to each other and reacting to each other, the drama will come from each other. It's not going to, you're not going to put it into the thing. So don't put anything into it. No matter, maybe never, just every take. I want them to talk to each other like they would if the cameras weren't rolling, but be saying the lines to each other the same way. And that's all I want them to do. So that's a combination of a lot of things Dustin Hoffman teaches in his master class. 
which is unfortunately is not available anymore, uh, which is a tragedy. Um, sorry, I had to drink some coffee. And basically, we'll be taking that. Also, I found that improvisation exercises leading into the, the lines of the scene also help. Um, so I'm going to experiment with that or having them talk to each other normally. Honestly, I might just do the talking thing because that might be just better in, in, in general. Um, but anything that gets them loosened up before this, right before the scenes, you know, like right before they go through the lines. So they, they sound natural and grounded, but I want them, I don't want them to put anything into it. I just, I mean, if anything, I want them to do it fast. I want them to be like, just, just, I want it to be snappy, but I don't want to tell them to be fast, but I mean, well, I probably will have to, but really it's just, it's about going through it, but, um, or at least being fast in reacting to the other person. Um, I think, I don't know. Uh, we'll have to find out, but I think I'm going to be very reserved. I hopefully, hopefully I'm going to be very reserved about how I direct people on my next things. I think that'll be best. Um, but that's, that's been my thought process lately of, of what I did wrong lately and what I need to improve on. Excuse me. And I hope that this is the right path and I figure out what the right path is at least before my feature film. Um, that's my hope. Uh, I, I have a lot of projects I'll be doing until then. And so I, I, I should be able to work out the kinks um, for the most part. Um, but then again, I mean, there's there's always going to be kinks that you, you, you're you going to be continually working out throughout your filmmaking career and your and throughout your filmmaking throughout your life there's think there's kinks in life that you're always going to be working out so you know i'm stressing about this it's just a course of life is learning what you're doing wrong and figuring out how to do it better so casting and crew call how do you find people the right people to work with um don't settle find the right people even if it takes time dependable people you can work with on the film you're setting out to make also people who can communicate Dependability and communication. Um, those are some huge factors. Talent as well. Um, I find that if the person is talented, but they're not dependable and they don't communicate, don't work with them. That's just, that's, that's my rule. I don't work with people if they're not, if I can't, especially at this stage, like where I'm, I don't have a lot of resources. If I can't, it's like, Okay, great. You can do this exceptionally well, but if you're not going to show up when I need you, like if you're not, if you're going to screw me over or not show up consistently, like if something happens, like I get it. Like, like if something drastic happens, you know, yes, like we're going to, that's a, that's something that affects everybody. Like we're going to treat it as such that is it's, you know, like if something horrible happens, we're there for you. But if you're just doing it to screw people and you're not being reliable, like, or being honest about your unreliability, it's like, and communicating it, you know, no, like it's not an option. Um, and if, as long, if you, if you allow those kind of people to work on your films, you're, you know, the other people who are dependable are going to look at that and say, wait, you're going to tolerate this from this person. Um, yeah, I don't know if I want to work with you or I don't know if I'm going to be as dependable anymore. 
You know, I might be less dependable myself because apparently you 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 tolerate that standard. I don't tolerate the standard in myself. I I fucking feel terrible if I'm late to a set. But usually, that can happen because I'm loading like I'm, it takes me an hour or so to load all the lighting and shit and all the filmmaking equipment into the fucking car. Um, that that can happen. Um, it takes a lot to load all that crap. Always more than I think it does. Um, also, uh, you know, I've I've heard of directors who who and i won't name names uh i don't even know their name but i i've heard of the project they were attached to and i won't mention what it is but it's this guy would show up hours late the director hours late because he slept in if you're doing that quit don't don't do that to people okay like get the fuck out of here all right that's the bullshit <laughs> like i struck a nerve um yeah no that's 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 just fucking garbage. Um, there's no excuse for that. Um, now, <laughs> I mean, if it happens once because, like, for whatever, some, like, real reason, uh, you better fucking apologize to people, all right? At the very least. You you need to fucking apologize to people because you wasted their damn time. I never want to ever waste people's, people's time. Might it happen one day by accident? It's possible, and I hope that it doesn't happen. But, you know, I'm always on sets, on my own sets. I'm always like, okay, I'm, I'm, I, I set multiple fucking alarms for myself. I, I do all sorts of shit to us because I, I think about the worst thing that could possibly happen. I try to mitigate it. It, it comes back to that stre- extreme ownership thing. All right, like I, when I did Rusty Spade, I should have gave myself thirty hours to make that film. It was a twelve-minute film, a one-take twelve-minute film. I nowadays I only res, I only make a film if I have three hours to shoot per page of it or per minute of it, of for final product and and or, or final cut of like the final uh production. You know, three hours per minute or page, or four hours like so one for rehearsal. You know, um, and I had eight. We had four hours, five hours of rehearsal the day before, which knocked the crap out of me. And then we had eight hours to, you know, shoot it. And then by the fifth hour, we hadn't gotten a full take in. And you got to decide whether you're the person. And, 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 And at that point, I was like, I'm really tired. This is this is the most tired I've ever been in my life. Like, I I was just. I was kind of just like, like, like on my knees, like, just like, this is my hands on my knees. I'm like, oh my God, I've never been this tired, this this tired before. Oh my, how is it possible? <laughs> like, and that, and, and, and we didn't even get a take. And, and, and if I don't get this today, I'm going to have to reshoot it with completely, di- mostly different cast. And, and these are people I want to work with in the future on like a World War II film. I've been, planning to work with these are friends of mine i'd be screwing them over because they're working so fucking hard on this and we'd have to redo the rehearsal and and i didn't have any films on my under my belt so i couldn't reshoot it like i did recently on something but that was that wasn't as hard as that project as rusty spade but i was like at that moment i was like you know this is a defining moment this is a moment where you gotta decide all right you can either be a bitch and and allow this to fuck you up and 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 you know, give up or you can fucking own it and take responsibility for it. You put yourself here. You decided to set these parameters, these limitations for yourself, whether you chose them or some, or you let life choose them for you. 
in that case is part, it was partly both i let my i let my friends or I let, I let other things choose the limitations of let's do it all in one weekend um i at that moment you have to own it if you don't own it you're not a filmmaker and that's true of me if i don't own it myself um so i'm i'm, I'm holding a high bar for myself too you have to own it if you're going to create those situations, if you're going to create a situation where you write a script where you need this exact car or you need this exact mansion or this exact thing to make that thing happen, that's on you. If I'm going to write this World War II film, and I have been, you know, I'm, it's a D-Day film, <laughs> but I'm going to do it. I'm going to figure out how to do it in PA because I believe this is, a, this is a way to do it. And hell, if I can make a several hundred Lego people get slaughtered in like storming area 51. I can probably pull this off pretty well with visual effects if I have to push comes to shove, but you know, <laughs> I, mean, I think my, my visual effects will be good enough, but you know, I think, I, th I think it'll, I think I'll be able to find a way and I'll, I'm, I'm, it'll be like probably a mixture of like practical effects shot uh, on, you know, green screens and com composited. If push comes to shove, like if I can't make PA farm fields look like hedgerows, I'll find I'll find a way to do it. I'm gonna own it. That's my problem to solve. I chose it. It's my destiny. Just like your destiny is to figure out the film that you believe you are going to be making. Um, so, yeah. And then, so when it comes to finding people, don't fucking settle. All right, find right good fucking people. And and honestly, like, there's something about. And, and if you ever heard the saying, uh, it's about who you know. There is something about who you know in terms of finding ways solutions to make films because people can offer up solutions to problems that you haven't you might not have the experience or the ability or the time or the knowledge of solving or resources or, or connections and they can help you so find those people and and you know dig in because you know that's your job that's what you do this is what this is about um so yeah, don't settle. Find dependable people who you can communicate and are talented. Um, those are three things that I think are non-negotiable. All three of them. Talented, dependable, communicated, communicable. That's a fucking terrible pronunciation. Communicable people. People who communicate within a timely manner. I mean, if it, if it takes them a f like more than three days, sometimes that happens. But like if it takes consistently a week or two, and they only have, and they, if they respond and the other 50% of the time they don't respond, which I've had, you got to cut those people don't work with them. And the, sometimes they, people will slowly drift into becoming that person or people disrespect you friends who you used to have a lot of, you hold in high regard, you used to respect and used to, you know, have respect for you. If they stop respecting you and, and they start, you know, overstepping their boundaries and, and they don't respect your privacy or their, you know, they don't respect your boundaries that you set for them. I haven't really had an issue with privacy, but I don't know why I said that. But um, if, if you don't, you know, if you don't let if you, if you let people overstep your boundaries that you set. You're asking for it. So set boundaries and if people disrespect those boundaries, cut them out cut them out of your life. Um, you got to do it. It's hard. It really is hard. I've had to, I've had friends who just for whatever reason, like, I mean, and I, I thought at the time I was doing something wrong and it, 
honestly, if I continued to think I was the one at, at, at fault. And I still question what I could have done better in a situation if there was things. I always look for that. But if I'm honest with it, and, and it, honestly, when I talk about it to anybody else, it, come, it becomes apparent to me that, no, they were just being blatantly disrespectful and not respecting my boundaries. Um, and a lot of times people like myself or maybe you as an audience member, you know, you might have this, you might be the type of person who allows people to walk on you in certain situations and you can't be that. You got to, you got to step out of that. And I, I love filmmaking because it's one of those things that teaches you the hard way you have to do that in order to make great films and, and, and not sacrifice and your films. And, you know, you have, you, you, it teaches you, 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 it's like, you have to choose between allowing that and, and, and trying not to, you know, you know, uh, what's the word? Um, trying not to rock the boat versus trying you know, versus making a shitty film. Like if you, if you, if it's between making a shitty film and not rocking the boat, I'm rocking the fucking boat. I'll rock the boat all day long if I have to, just so that I can make sure my films aren't shit and, and, and that I don't, and, and cause that's going to reflect on my soul. That's going to reflect on my sense of self, who I am. Uh, and I'm not going to allow that. You shouldn't allow that either. So, and don't, don't fucking deal with that. Don't, don't, I mean, don't fucking allow that to happen in your life, in, in your filmmaking. Okay. Don't let people take advantage of you and, and, and fuck up your films and fuck up your sense of confidence in life or your, your, your sense of who you are. All right. Protect it. Guard it. We're getting pretty, uh, pretty deep in <laughs> Was it, I guess, is, we're going to a therapy session here. <laughs> Okay. All right. So that was casting and crew call. <laughs> so how to find people. There's things like backstage for act, finding actors. There's backstage.com. There's film.org. If you're in Philly, finding filmmakers or um, I, I there's there's all sorts. Just look up websites and places to find or like gigs was a gigster. I haven't used that. There's there's a lot of websites I haven't used. Pro, uh, Production hub. All, all there's websites out there you can look up like websites for finding product like like cast or crew or something just you google go go and google i i that'll probably be a better resource than what i can provide right now but i know i have filmo.org backstage.com there are people out there you can find them all right you don't have to just use your friends i i learned that lesson when i worked on feeding the fire i realized i, th I thought i was just going to be making a film with my friends that I had at my disposal. And instead I got opened up to this world of filmmaking because my friend was like, Oh, just go on film.org. I was like, what? And so I, I did that. Um, so how I cast, um, lately it's been changing. Um, I'll often, you know, David Lynch mentions that there's a approach he does where he will sit down with the actor somewhere and just talk to them and ask them questions about themselves and kind of, look at them and listen and, and, and he'll, he'll see and hear them talking and about themselves. And, and through that gauge as, and as he does that, ask them questions about themselves and then gauge whether they, they kind of fit the character and he'll go scene by scene as he's talking to them. So it could be like a few hours he's talking to them and he'll be like, okay, I can imagine them in the scene. I can imagine them in a scene, not this scene. They're not good. But he, if he goes through every scene and they work for each scene, that he cast them. That's what he did with the uh, was it Naomi Watts or some I forget. I hope that's not. I hope that's her name. Um, she was in uh, uh, it was uh, Mahalan Drive, I think. And 
and she so yeah like naomi watts was you know she was in hollywood you know struggling for years and you know she like she had dealt with casting directors constantly just being like all right next not even paying attention not even looking her in the eye and here she meets with david lynch and he is wrapped and absorbed in everything she has to say he's interested and he was looking at her listening to her what she had to say actually listening and tell and you know as he was listening figuring out okay yeah i think i could see her playing this character in the scene and going through the entire scene and uh, I think that's so cool, honestly. Um, I, I'm trying to de determine whether I should, uh, you know, whether I want to completely adopt that approach. I used to think I could, but I'm I, I'm trying to be more careful now. And maybe I, it's a mixture of that and also um, having the actor send a video audition and um, giving, you know, having them do it without directions first. And then a variation with directions I give them just to see the the, the range of and, and how they adapt to the directions I give them. Um, also, um, really, it's from there. It's just hearing them, seeing and hearing them saying the lines and seeing if it if it works, if you can see if it, if it feels right. Um, I don't know. It, you got to figure out what works right. Um, when working with people for the first time. Uh, don't be someone that leans forward or backwards. What I mean is, also this this next bit is about how I try to go about my relationships to people I'm working with. Um, and I feel like this creates um, better relationships long-term and you know, also allows you to create more relationships with people you're working with. Um, when working with people for the first time, don't be someone that leans forward or backwards. What I mean is, this is a metaphor for our relationship with people. When you meet someone for the first time, who you are to them when you meet them is who you will be to them for the rest of their life. So pay very close attention to your first interactions with all people. The best way to go about it is to not lean. By that I mean, leaning forward is showing too much interest in someone to the point where it's disturbing, you're being a creep, and that sets off red, a red flag. Leaning backwards means you're showing less or no interest in someone or not what you should be. And you're doing it to make them insecure and uh, make them want to earn your attention. That person who leans backwards is an asshole and in some extreme cases, a cult leader. Um, instead, you shouldn't lean forward or backwards. You should sit up straight and show people just the amount of interest in and attention that they deserve, not more and not less. They'll be interested in working with you and vice versa, and neither of you will be feeling red flags about the other. Red flags often happen because someone is leaning forward or backward. Now, not everyone is perfect at this. I certainly am not. There are situations where I see myself leaning forwards a bit or backwards a bit and showing too much or a little bit too little or too much or, or too little interest in someone. But generally, you should ask yourself, are you treating this person with which with just the amount of, of of kindness and courteousness that they deserve? And if they're showing if and if you're showing them respect, did they earn that respect? You shouldn't have respect for someone until they've earned it for you from you. I think that's important. Um, I know that's that might be controversial for some people, but that, that that's not to say you're not showing kindness and courteousness to them from you. Uh, the same is true of people you meet. If you're having a weird feeling about someone, ask yourself, are they showing you more or less interest than they should be? 
are they leaning forward or learning or leaning backwards that's the way to tell if they are someone you should be working with be friends with or be in a relationship with or be spending any amount of time with be someone who stands or sits up straight and surround yourself with people who do the same always when you do this you'll lead a happier more productive and overall better life so to you know a small way to reiterate that you know I try to do this. I try not to, you know, be somebody who takes advantage of others. I don't want to ever do that. I don't want to hurt people. Uh, I don't like, I don't even like being dishonest with people. Now, when it comes to honesty, maybe there's times where there's like five or 10% of the time where you don't want to be completely honest. Um, or you might want to withhold some information because people are emotional being as this comes from watching interstellar recently. Again, um, one of my favorite Nolan movies, um, probably my second or first favorite. I'm not sure, but like Tars, the, the robot guys, like, uh, you know, he, he has a honesty parameter of 90% honesty and they, at the end of the movie, it turns up to 95%, but he's like, why, why 90%? Well, humans are emotional beings and you should never always be on completely honest with them. I think there's situations where you you don't want to if you can hurt somebody if you're too honest, um, and you just want to be so on like I, I I don't know it's 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 you, it's your call you got to figure that out but I I think generally my my go to is to be honest with people especially if it's something that will help them always if it's something that will help them they need to know like to you got to be honest with people I mean if there's a scene where the actors you know if they hear if I tell them something that I might think is true in my head, but really it's not gonna help them. I will keep that from to myself until we get to where we need to go the proper way. Because sometimes if you tell an actor, hey, you're not being uh, or like you're not being sexy or you're not doing this right, you know, you know, it, it if they think they're doing something, if they're, they think they're playing it sexy or whatever they're supposed to be playing it as, and you say that um, and you tell them to do it that way, it's going to completely knock out their confidence. And that, that goes back to um, the directing actors book by Judith Weston. That was one of the things like you want to give people actionable directions. I forgot to mention. And that book is basically, a, a you know, you basically go through the exercises and, it you know, you brainstorm ideas you have about the script. And then that evolves into figuring out which which things are immutable laws. And then of those immutable laws, how do you give how do you come up with brainstorm directions that are actionable, i.e. as ifs, um, action verbs, objectives, backstory, history, like, like or, or history, or um, what is it? It's um, a subtext or, um, the, uh, or, or physical life. All these different things that you can give uh, to the actor to that immediately translates to directions. I think those are important, but I, I feel like I feel like being too analytical or being too abstract and doing too much work of breaking down my scripts might be the wrong route. And so a lot of this process, uh, this toolbox of production is, I'm, I think I'm gonna might be streamlining it more towards just writing the script and then figuring out the shots and and also the, the need list or the breakdown of what I need to create the film. You know, I need to find this location, these actors, these props, all that stuff, these these wardrobe, all that, or makeup. Figuring out the logistics, the shots, and the lighting. Um, and honestly, what I think about the script from writing it is what is all that matters, probably. You know, I don't need to do a chi map. That probably goes into too much detail, and I get, I, it muddies the 
the waters. Um, I think that's what happened on my sketch in terms of the, the performances. And I feel like that's probably true of the chi map thing. Cause honestly, that thing really screwed us with, with, uh, feeding the fire in a way. All I need to do though, is, is, is find my shots and, and lighting and my figure out my lighting strategy, which I'll get into in a bit and the breakdown and, 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 you know, do a rehearsal. Of course, uh, I think, I think that's important. Um, I'll see, but yeah, I, finding these, this is the way I go about meeting people uh, and creating relationships now is I try to, you know, if I, if I, somebody sends me a really good reel or audition video or something, I say, I like that. I don't say, oh, I love that. I don't say, um, I don't say anything less than I like that. You know, I, I want them to know that I liked it and that keeps us that I'm being respectful. I'm being kind to them. They feel like, oh, wow, I'm I, I feel like that 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 enables them to feel, oh, wow, this person complimented my work, but it doesn't feel creepy. If you say, oh, I love this, you know, that's fuck that, you know, I wouldn't I would immediately have red flags about somebody like, oh, I fucking love everything about your <laughs> films. I'm like, oh, OK. Uh, all right. Uh, all right. Um, you know, it's just it, it's creepy. Uh, and I think I think it's better to come at things with uh, with just being, you know, keeping a respectful distance with people, you know you're not invading their space. They're not invading yours. You know, you're, you're, you're keeping mutual respect. Um, of course it res you, they, you have to earn each other's respect by, you know, working together or, you know, you know, be, uh, being there for each other, uh, when you should be and doing the right thing. And over time, then you'll earn respect from each other. And this is a way of doing that. Um, that's been my late, my, re my recent philosophy on, dealing with people it's or it's developed over the years into this and uh, i'll give an i, I mentioned uh an example of something leading back is a cult like an, in extreme cases a cult leader i didn't put that there just for oh partly i did for for you know for it to be for the boldness of it and and you know you know the the shock value but honestly though i did kind of end up in a situation where i kind of met this person who really had that a, a vibe of that not they weren't a cult leader but from everything i've heard from people who knew this person and and my interaction with them it had that feeling um and a quick thing about it was uh and I'll, like i i i learned this recently there's um there's a book i'm reading called and this 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 ties into this this isn't just a random tangent um there's a book called i'm okay you're okay and it's a it's a psychology book. I was it the six seventies or eighties. It's a good book. I'm reading it now. I'm, I mean, I've been enjoying it so far, um, and I'm learning some things. And and there's a it kind of breaks the human brain into three systems: the parent, the child, and and the adult. And the parent and child are are things that come that that are kind of hard hardwired into you from childhood. Like the parent is is the philosophies and ideas that your parents said this you know this is this has to be the way, and there's certainties and the I forget what the child thing is but um, oh, I'm probably gonna reread the book uh, once I finish it. Um, it's it's one of those books that you're like this is like this is the twenty percent that gets eighty percent of the results uh, in in a lot of cases, uh, in psychology at least and in your own emotional health I think, 
and and the reviews seem to to say the same thing um um but basically the dull part is the part of the brain that says that looks around and analyzes the world and takes in you know and, and makes guesses on the future and says hold on we might have been told this from our parents or something but was it really true and it it, it it basically breaks things down and says, no, that's not true. This is true. And you're not erasing the the things that are imprinted on you from childhood and the lessons and the, the crazy ideas your parents gave you, but you're able to turn them off. And a physical cue of the parent is, or the, the, of the, uh, the physical cue of, of a sign of, of the adult inaction of, of any person is movement listening it's it's when they're listening to you they're blinking a lot when i'm talking on the podcast i'm editing the podcast i i make and i'm like why am i oh, look i'm blinking so many times and me or i'm moving around that apparently is supposed to mean that i'm in my adult brain hopefully um and that means that i'm assessing things i'm being negotiable i'm being you know somebody i somebody can work with not being somebody who's wagging the finger and saying no 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 now there's times where I probably do that and I got to work, I got to, you know, continue to root that out of my behavior and I, I continue to plan to do that. And that's something that you have the power to do. Also, oh, the child is the, is the element of you that like is trying to, you know, trying to be the one up others or say, I'm, you know, I got a bigger blah, 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 or this is, some, you know, I, I do this better, you know, you know, bragging so that, because it feels that I'm, I'm not okay. You're okay. A lot of, a lot of kid, a lot of people grow up with that feeling that they're not okay, but that person's okay. And the way to deal with that is to say, Oh, I got a better thing of this than you do. Or I, I make better films than you do. <laughs> and that's, that's something that a lot of filmmakers are, you know, there are times where I'm like, do I do that? No, I don't want to do that. No, that's not a good thing. If I ever, I try to catch myself if I ever do that. But, uh, you know, you, you basically realize that the child self, that's your child self that thinks that you're not okay, that person's okay. You got to turn that off. You got to acknowledge that when it's happening and say, okay, am I, am I, through my insecurity, I feel insecure with myself. So I have to make my, try to make other people feel insecure. So I have to say, oh, I got, I'm better at this than you are, or I'm, you know, it's bullshit. It's just so that you can feel better about yourself, but it doesn't work. It really doesn't. Um, it may be a momentary feeling or fleeting sense of like, oh, I feel better. You know, I feel I one up this person, but you don't always, you don't, it doesn't last. So it's not the right route of going. You want to go the adult brain where um, also the parent is like, you, you, you tell somebody how things are. Um, it's slightly different. But yeah, so the adult brain is you're assessing things. You're, you're being reasonable. You're being rational. And if you're an adult, if you're or if you're being a parent, the parent brain is physical cues are are not moving, sitting, not blinking, just sitting still, listening to the person, or not maybe not even listening. You're just it's just stillness. I met the person I met did that to me. I didn't understand what was going on at the moment. It was kind of weird, but I was like, oh wow, this person's paying a lot of attention. <laughs> and uh I was like, okay. Um and and, and it's like they were deliberately trying to like pay a lot of attention, but there's certain things that they said that like were like striking me as 
just rubbing me the wrong way. I'm like, wow, did they just say that? I'm like, okay. And then like that, they stopped paying attention to me for the rest of the conversation, paid, just paid attention to the other person, my friend who took me to, to their class. And it was as if it felt like it, it, at the time I was like, am I doing something wrong? Like why are, they're not, I'm, and I started saying things. I started doing things to like, to get, you know, to, I felt like I was out of the the conversation at that point. I was like, what's going on? And I'm like, okay, uh, like, am I not, am I doing something wrong? It was one of those things. So I'm like, I, am I the one wrong here? I don't know. Did I say something? And it was that moment or it was later on. I'm realizing, or probably in that moment too, I realized, no, I'm not doing anything wrong. They're doing this on purpose. It seems like, or they're not doing it consciously, but they're doing it on, they're doing it with intent because everything they said leading up to that moment, they were talking about how great directors manipulate their actors or, you know, this director is great, the best in the world because he does this. And, and they were completely disregarding things much like a parent, you know, the parent brain, they were, they were shitting on like European films, like saying that all European films are doing it all wrong. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know about that. I love European films. Um, I've learned a lot of things about, you know, I don't adopt all their philosophies. Like I, I want my films to still be kind of entertaining. All right. <laughs> but, you know, not to shit on them, but, you know, I do love a lot of the things I can glean from them and it, it reflects into my style. Um, and so I was like, okay, this person's very particular about their opinions. Um, and then they just completely disregarded me the rest of the conversation. And it was as if to say, I'll pay you attention again if you start paying for my class, if you start, you know, coming to my lessons and I'll pay attention to you like I'm paying attention to your friend who actually pays me to be in my class. I don't know if that was the thing um, or if they just do that class so that they can take advantage of people like that. And it's important to realize when that's happening because you're not at fault. That person's just being an asshole. Don't let assholes walk you walk all over you. Don't let them take advantage of you. Don't don't allow fucking um, borderline cult leaders or cult leaders like to 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 make you drink their Kool Aid. Fuck that. All right. Have some fucking confidence in, your, in yourself in 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 your ability to to assess when you're right and when you're wrong. When you're right, you know when you're right. Usually you can tell or, you know, sometimes you think, am I wrong? No, no. This doesn't seem right. This person's doing something right now and it's bothering me. Ask yourself, are they leaning forward or are they leaning back? Because if they're leaning back, if they're, you know, normally if people are paying a certain amount of attention, that might be the amount of attention you should be getting from people or that's that's what they should be treating you with if they're being respectful if they're being kind you know so if this person's doing this completely different thing um they're trying to manipulate you and it's important to realize that um if you feel like you're uh you're walking on eggshells around someone you have to identify that and realize it's not your fault. They're just, it's their personal baggage and their problems. And it's not your problem. It's not your fault. 
It's, you know, the fact that you're willing to acknowledge that it, it, it could be your fault is enough to show you that you're a rational, considerate human being and that they're being a fucking prick and they shouldn't be doing that to you. So remember that, um, you know, if some fucking filmmaker making a podcast about how to make movies, you know, tells you this is how you have to do it, like, or you're not as good, you know, fuck that person. I'm not doing that. I think you're great. <laughs> you know, I mean, I appreciate you. If you're listening to this far, you know, I appreciate it. Um, you know, and I think if, there, if any, of this, any of this works, if any of it doesn't, that's fine. I mean, figure out what works for you. Um, uh, you know, let's all help each other out here. Let's not be assholes to each other. We can all grow and, and, and succeed at this collectively um, by working together. Okay. Breakdown or need list. I call it, I like calling it a need list. It sounds funny. Um, the breakdown or need list is basically, it's, you're, you're creating a list of, of shit you need to make the movie. Uh, reread the script as you go through it, put together a list, organize it however works best for you. I usually, I don't know, sometimes I organize it like this is all the things I need per scene and then I go through all those thing lists for each scene and then create a, a master list of all the film and and I, I get rid of duplicates or something. I, I, I have no clear method on what works best for this. It's it's really if there's something in the script that says you need this or you can surmise, oh, shit, I need that. Be be ahead of the uh, just be ahead of the the what the curb with that or be ahead of just if you you know, if this is where you shoot down problems before they hit you. All right. You know, like I think Ridley Scott once said, like when he was making The Martian or something. You know, in an interview, like in round table, director's round table interview, he was saying, it's easy when you're making a space movie. If you see like a, like, because everybody was talking about how hard it is to make a space movie. It's like, if, if you see a problem coming over the horizon, you shoot it down before it gets to you. And I think what he's saying is you have to be proactive in terms of, of, of anticipating issues. So reading the script, sometimes reading between the lines, it might not be written in the script that you need something, but you might realize, oh shit, I need that. And I didn't write it. It's not written in the script, but it's like, you know, you need that. You have to know what those things are. Um, you know what they are. You'll often find them. Um, but read the script, reread it and, and get that list together and be, and be very, you know, surgical about it or, or very, very, uh, not surgical, but, um, rigorous, uh, be very, um, uh, methodical in terms of making sure you do the right preparation. Um, lookbook, find inspiration from films out there, identify what you like about them and how they affect you and what they did to do it, uh, and identify how you might use these elements to tell the story you're telling. Uh, if you want to use this, go for it. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to do a lookbook. I've never done one. Um, I might, but honestly, I, I just let the movies I watch affect me deep down. I feel like that's all I can do. I don't feel like putting together a lookbook is going to help me. It might. I don't know. Um, I honestly feel like that just might. It's might. It, I feel like that's the wrong type of limitation to choose. It's kind of like you know, it, it's picking the wrong limitations. You know, I think that there's other limitations I want to pick from, to you know, tell my story. Um, I don't know. Honestly, I kind of like experimenting with lights, and and camera angles, myself, and seeing how I feel, how it makes me feel. 
And I feel like oftentimes I can find things from doing that. And often thing, ideas come from me that I might not realize come from films I've seen or memories of films I've seen. And they just, they, but there, or maybe they're an amalgamation of all the films I've seen where I've seen all these different films where the, the lighting was this done this way. But also sometimes I don't want the lighting to be so blatantly towards some direction. I don't want it to be so blatantly being this. I kind of want to make my films feel neutral in a lot of ways. I want a lot of times to, sometimes there's times to be stylistic, but especially in my bigger projects, I feel like I want to, you know, unless there's like a clear style I'm going for, like a black and white World War II film, where I feel like it needs to be that for many reasons. Um, I just, I want it to, I don't want it to be drawing attention to itself. And if I feel like it's drawing too much attention to it. It's not the right thing. And so a lookbook feels like an easy route to coming up with a style or an artificial style of how to make the film that isn't rooted in the film itself, but is also, um, but it, but it basically, it, it, it's, it's drawing attention to itself. It's just, I, I don't know, I, for whatever reason, it just doesn't feel like the right approach, but, or it might be, I don't know. I might give it a shot one day. I might find it a like, I like it. Um, maybe it's just a laziness. <laughs> I don't know. Do it, putting together a fucking lookbook. I don't, I don't know. I could be wrong. Um, but I don't even really know. I, I, I feel like I'm just, it would just be like this weird scavenger hunt. And I'm not really putting together things that really influence me. I feel like if I want something to influence me, I want it to be coming from, from my, a deep state of creativity, not a state of, of haphazardly looking over the internet at frames from movies. I don't feel like that's a very structured process. I don't think it's a very productive process. It doesn't lead to very good results from my experience when it comes to writing or anything. So why would it work for coming up with the look of a movie? I don't know. I feel like looking up or I feel like looking into my soul, looking into my, you know, my psyche, my memory, my ideas, what I've seen, my experience for ideas and inspiration is the better route. So that's why I haven't done a lookbook and I might not do one. I don't know. I might give it a shot. Probably not. My principles for cinematography. So this is what I put together when somebody asked me on the film Real Oranges when I was cinematographer on that. And I was it was my first time doing cinematography for somebody else's film, not just mine. And so it taught me a lot of lessons, but I, I realized my process of lighting and, and storytelling and, or like cinematography. Um, I have five principles um, and I might add an extra one or, or incorporate that into one of these. Um, but the five principles are story, framing, light sources or just sources and then lighting and then simplicity story framing sources lighting simplicity story comes first story is king where are we in the story where is the character in their journey what what what's going on you know that's that matters more than everything okay what's the tone of the story everything everything about the story that's the story the story that that's the key all right read the script read the fuck out of that script figure out what's going on and then also trust your director, the director and the or, or and hopefully they're the same person, the writer, uh, you know, they have a really deeply rooted idea of that film. I feel like that's super true of writer directors. That's why I, I like writing, directing films. I, I, you know, I prefer doing that um, because you, when you writing is such an intimate process that leads to great directing, I think for me, 
or what I've seen also for great filmmakers I've seen. My favorite filmmakers, Nolan, Tar Tarkovsky, um, uh, you know, uh, Tarantino, um, uh, Coen Brothers, you know, they it, it's through writing that you have a lot of the most visceral ideas and that leads to the ideas for how to make the film. And uh, lately, and I feel like I'm, I'm getting rid of the parts where I'm writing about the film I'm making and just sticking to the, the gut internal instinctual feelings I had about the film itself uh, or that I wrote, um, especially when I've done a shit ton of drafts. Like I feel like I, I just have those ideas there at the ready. But stories first, and that becomes the, the thing that influences everything else. And that starts to influence the framing. Framing is the first thing I think of where I figure out when I'm at the scene or the set location scouting. And I like to figure out the framing for every single shot that I can. I'll if I'm shooting somebody else's film and it's it's likely that the, the shooting script's going to change until before like up to the day of hopefully not on the day too much. But at the beginning of the shoot day, I learned I have to talk to the director, hound him and say or her and say, look, uh, walk me through every shot that we're getting today. Show me with your eyeballs and your hands the framing, and I can I can help work with you on that. And then if I saw, spot any problems, like with 180 degree roll, like and we might want to break the 180 degree roll, but we want to do it deliberately. And I, I can tell you if I feel like we're doing that, and if I, I can I, if I feel like we're not, I can warn you. I can say, hey, look, I think you're missing this thing. You don't think you're missing that? You want to do that? Okay, we'll, we'll do that then. Um, but I'll and I'll I'll be able to keep things in mind, and um, and then we won't be doing things messing things up by accident we'll be doing it much more controlled and also it'll give me time through the rest of the day to create how i'm going to light those scenes or for not just this shot but all shots i want to light it for all the shots you know um so i figure out the framing for every shot of the scene and i figure out the best framing you know framing Where's the actor in the scene, the blocking? You can also change the blocking so that it makes better framing. You know, where's the camera in relation to the actor in relation to the background? Is the background interesting? Do you want it to be interesting for the story? It depends on the story. You know, do we want to, you know, honestly, I'm starting to like doing wide lenses lately. Um, I, I've been doing it a lot and I, I'm enjoying it. Um, I use, and I, I like to have a busy background. I like to let the audience be, you know, seeing the world that the character lives in and the, where their place in it. I want the audience to feel that, to feel like they're right in front of the character. They're in their personal space and to a degree, especially if it's a drama or if it's something uncomfortable. I want to put the audience there. And so, and also wide lenses are really, feel, they feel much easier in terms of creating cool compositions. Um, it's it part, partly is a lazy, no, it's not a lazy thing because there are some challenges with it, but it excites me. The challenge of that, of using a wide lens, excites me. Um, from there, you have light sources. You figure out, okay, if we're shooting these frames the, for uh, for these different shots, we're doing these angles, um, and we figure out based on like based on each other, like do they work within the one degree rule? All the different composition rules, or what what how's it what effect is going to have on the audience? Do we, we think, or does this cut well to this shot? Does their eye line match this person? Or if we're shooting this person's coverage and then the reverse coverage or something, are we shooting it the same way, same distance, same focal length, same same angle, or or like like a or kind of an opposite angle or what something? I don't know. Whatever feels right or balanced you got to trust your instincts on that then the light sources what 
how are we lighting this? Um, figure out where the biggest light sources in the scene are and whether we want to create artificial light sources that become prominent in the, in the scene. Also, what color are those light sources? You might want to create an artificial light source that creates color contrast. You might want to not create light. You might want to create shadows. I might want to change that to light sources and shadows. And you want to decide, okay, this is where I want shadows to come from. Because see, if you were looking at the video version of this right now, I've been exploring a lot with shadows lately. Like I, I like, I have a negative fill right here, blocking out light. You know, it seems kind of counterintuitive when you're starting filmmaking. You think, I need more light. Why would I need shadows? Shadows are, are your friend, okay? Even Roger Deakins loves shadows, okay? I, I, I love shadows now. I love looking for ways to incorporate a little bit of shadow, at least from the side that the camera's on. Or, or if it's a direct shot, it's fine if it's coming from the side. But like, if the camera is, if the person is, if, you're, if, you're, if we're seeing a close-up of the actor, whatever side is closest to the camera, generally you want the shadows to be coming from there because it, it looks better when the shadows are kind of creating a silhouette on the clo side closest, the side of the face or the person closest to the, the camera. That's just something to think about. Um, and also, uh, yeah, and, and, and so also there's color contrast, uh, like color contrast that can help with creating something really cool, creating a cool mood that fits the story, you know, making the audience feel something using color and also creates color separation. So when we cut from this shot to this shot, this, we know this color lights coming from here, this color lights coming from here. And when you know what colors, the, what color temperature the lights are, what color the lights are, or you've chosen a, a light that you want to have a certain color, or you've chosen where the shadows are coming from, especially shadows too are beautiful. I feel like I didn't use them enough, um, or I should have used them more in, in, in uh, real oranges. Um, and I plan to do them more in my next work or my future, my continued work going forward, especially my future film, hopefully, I think. Uh, um, then you get to lighting or light wrapping um, or shadows uh, or, you know, <laughs> shadowing. <laughs> no, um, you basically then go based on, okay, this is where this color light source is coming from. This is what quality of light it is. And honestly, I think you can just, you're often safer going soft. You're safer going soft with, with soft lighting because what you can do is if you have a light in the background, like say you have a light behind your actor and you see it in the background, um, you can often cheat the, the light to make it feel like it's coming around and wrapping around the face a little bit. And, and, and it's, it, you know, I did that a bit. I cheated that a lot on, on real oranges and it, it seemed to work. Um, it, it looked nice. I, I, I felt, uh, I probably did it. I probably overdid it at times. Um, but it's, if it's a soft light source, you can cheat that because, you know, it, it could be that the light is hitting a wall nearby and bouncing off and hitting the actor or the person or the thing or the scene. And, but if it matches the color temperature of the practical or, or whatever light is in the scene, it sells it. That's, that's what is the cue of where is that light coming from is, does it match the color temperature often? Uh, that that's often the case or, or the quality of the light. Um, and using soft lighting, you can wrap light around actors and, and have a gradual fall off. Like right now I have a very gradual, I'm trying to have a kind of gradual fall off on my face. It's, I wanted it to be kind of harsh on the edges, like a soft harshness and harshness in terms of it's a bit brighter than what's on my front of my face. 
but I feel like I should have had it a bit brighter because looking at the screen um, on the camera and not the, the field monitor, I'll probably fix it in post, but uh, <laughs> fix it in post. But um, yeah, then, and so light wrapping and, and simplicity, you know, don't come in with all your lights. Don't come into the set with all your lights. All right. Don't, don't walk into a house, bring all your equipment in, bring what you need and, and try to strip, keep a stripped down, you know, setup. Now bring as much of equipment as you think you'll need in your car or your truck or whatever and bring it to the location, but don't bring it all out. I made that mistake the first day or not. All, I didn't really make that make mistake, but I, I did bring more things into the house than I needed with the apartment that we were shooting in. And then it, I didn't really, I didn't check the weather. Always check the weather. Uh, it was, it was a uh, torrential rainstorms and I was like running to my car to get something and I was like, oh, I don't need my jacket. I was drenched immediately. And in the first 10 seconds of being out there, I was like, what the fuck? I was getting a, a, a umbrella to cover one of my lights that was in the backyard from getting like wet and shit. And I'm like, oh, my God, like this is I learned from that. Have clear plastic garbage bags that you can big like 40 something gallon garbage bags that can fit over lights and you can kind of like, you know, stand up so it's not covering any vents. And then it, it creates a diffusion, but it's also protected from rain in a lot of cases, most lights. Um, so I, I, that's, a, that's a cool pro tip. <laughs> Not a pro tip. It's an amateur tip. Um, but uh, ah, I feel like a lot of pros do that. So probably. Yeah. yeah. Um, but so story, framing, light sources, lighting, simplicity. And a lot of times, like you might get to a point where you're like trying to do lights and light sources and, and shadows. And you're like, oh. I feel like this isn't working. I want the shadows to be on this side of the face. So you might go in back to the framing and change the framing. Uh, generally, you don't change the story, but uh, you you go and readdress. You can readdress how you want to communicate the story. Um, how do what do you want to influence with the audience? What kind of mood you want to give them that reflects the story? It might not be the same approach you had before if if something's not working. Um, so so you know think about these these variables: story, framing, light sources, lighting, simplicity. And I, I'm, I mean, I, I'm lately, I'm a big fan of light, of soft lighting because it just looks nice. It, you can easily cheat it in different directions. Uh, I mentioned before the tenant, the, the tenant DP and the, and also the DP on Nolan films like, like Interstellar and, and, um, Dunkirk, he likes to light the scene so that it, and then not change much per shot, maybe some small tweaks. I, that's what I'm trying to probably trying to do so that it feels more documentary because people feel like they're viewing life you don't you're not conscious of it but you're subconscious of of oh my god you know this the lighting hasn't really changed it feels consistent and you're not you know our brains are complex machines and we can kind of subconsciously know when something seems kind of off so when you see something and it feels it just feels right like from every angle you're like that feels like real life. It feels that you buy it. You you suspend your disbelief a little bit more. I might want to try doing that more. It comes to this idea that I heard from a, a cinematographer I worked with uh, that was you know helping on a film on. He was a great cinematographer. Um, and he, uh, I guess, I don't know if you wanted me to mention his name on the podcast, but he, he had notes on his uh, sheet. And it was, you know, one of the notes said, light spaces, not faces. Um and it was Adam Smith. He's a, a great director. If you ever heard of him, he's a steady cam operator too. Sorry, Adam, I mentioned your, your name. Um, I didn't know if you wanted me to mention his name. Uh, but I basically, 
he, it was a really cool note. It was lighting spaces, not faces. And basically what it means is like light the scene, like the space that the, you're shooting in and, and then not the faces. And then you do, then you light the, you know, the space and then go, don't change much. Um, you can change some things slightly and it's kind of a similar process and it, it like, it allows you to, um, it's faster generally. Um, it also, you know, it, it, cause you can endlessly try to tweak the lighting for a face, but if you light the space, you know, and accept that it's not going to look perfect on the face or it's not supposed to, you might tweak, tweak some things a little bit. It's just a better, more thorough process or it's, or it's much more, uh, thought out and an effective process. It's kind of like the, the tenant DP, I forget what his name is, something Hoyt something i it's some name i can't remember what it was uh <laughs> this person's name was it was some name i don't know <laughs> so uh then there's shot listing storyboarding i might be doing storyboarding for my world war ii film i don't know if it's my next world war, i don't know if it's my my next feature film I'm going to be doing it for but my next feature film the world war ii film or, or which whenever i do that one because i feel like that one i probably need that for uh i find that when you do storyboards it can help you visualize something that's hard to visualize really like i mean when i did that stop motion animation of lego people storm area 51 which was really ridiculous i storyboarded it all and i was then able to create these images out of, out of you know comp compositing all these different images i was getting like like the ground layer uh, the sky layer that i got off of google and shit all these different things all the different characters that i put into place and i made the lighting consistent on each on each frame but I, I was able to come up with a strategy based on that storyboard and it worked. It looks like the, the Lego movie, but it wasn't the Lego movie. It wasn't shot like that. It wasn't animated in 3D. It was animated from, from single frames on a green screen. And because I had a strategy, I and I had a strategy because I did the storyboards, I was able to create a, a I was able to create visuals that are really hard to create. Um, it take time and, and energy and focus and vision and, and, and was able to put it all together. And I'm honestly, it's one of the things I'm like, I'm really happy with how it turned out. Like, I'm really shocked by how even today I look back and I'm like, this still stands up <laughs> like in terms of one of my favorite things I've done. I, it's weird. It's sad, but it's like, it does. It, I mean, I, I, it was a shitty concept. I feel like to, to put all that effort into into doing something well, but it taught me how to do things well, especially after doing Rusty Spade and feeling like I didn't do things as well as I wanted. But uh, I digress. Um, and shot listing, it's important. To, yeah, of course, you know, writing lists down of what you're doing so that on the day of, you can reference it and keep track of what you're getting. And uh, because you really want to come up with lists that are streamlined, that are easy to access or information you need, keep track of things and not lose um, sight of what you're trying to get. And, you know, like uh, the, filmmaking is such a complex task. You just, you have a million things going on at once. It just, you know, you, you feel like it, 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 it's just, you're bombarded by things. And so you, you need things to manage that. And that's why you have like, that's why there's literally people that whose job is to, to manage things like that. That's all their job is, especially on bigger films. There's a reason why there's so many people involved in filmmaking, filmmaking and in different films. There's so many different jobs. Um, it's a it's such a complex thing, and it's hard to do it as like a, a 
a small rogue crew, but that's what I'm trying to figure it out. That's what I'm trying to figure out right now is how to do it that way within my means. Location scouting, bring a camera or a phone app. Um, what I learned, excuse me, what I learned from D Roger Deacon's podcast, excuse me, one of the early episodes was that he brings a, a camera and lenses to a scene, like a set when he goes location scouting. And what the importance is, is to see what a lens feels like in an environment. And I think uh, the the app I use is the CadRage app. I started using that. Um, I, I, or I think there's also the Artemis app. It allows me to get the ex the exact or the approximate, the most exact um, frame, framing line of what my lenses are going to look like with the speed booster I use on the camera I use, all, all those things. It allows me to get the most accurate representation of, of the framing. We talked about limitations. It's important to choose the right limitations. And for me, I think this is one of the most important limitations in filmmaking is knowing where the, knowing what lens you're using, the framing and where, how it looks in space. And, you know, when you put that camera in an environment with a certain lens or a certain focal length, it's going to do something. It's going to make it interesting or really fucking dull. And if you don't experiment with it and fuck around with it, you're going to allow life to impose those limitations on you. And you're not going to take advantage of the opportunity of creating a really cool visual. I feel like that's something I learned from Kubrick's films is like, or, or Tarkovsky's films or a lot of great filmmakers. They, they get really good visuals. They get, they, they, they try to get amazing frames that capture the world in a way that's, that's balanced, that's composed well, that they looks intriguing that that catches your eye um or hopefully tells the story better makes makes the character feel like they're in a a, a big lonely space or something i you know that these are things that you want to think about and you want to take you know you want you want to be proactive in in, in figuring them out so bring a, a, a an app or something on your phone or your like an ipad or or a, a camera with a lens that allows you to get the closest approximation for the framing lines. I like using my iPad because then I can, you know, take the pictures and I have, there's a lot of storage on there. Um, my phone storage fills up a lot. Basically, um, I use this and I get a lot of frames and, uh, I'll be able to look at it later. And then I get, I, I can review the frames and I can say, okay, this, this, uh, this looks good. This doesn't look good. I found that during when I was planning the most recent comedy sketch, the the shots of it, I was originally going to use the 18 to 35 Sigma lens, a lot of it. But then I thought something's not right. I don't like it. I've used it too much. I just didn't. I, I fell out of love with it. And then I like I spent 10 hours one day just lighting shots and trying different things and until I had a bunch of like footage of just you know me in the scene to as a sample and. And the camera on tripod and testing different lights and, you know, taking notes on everything I did, what the color temperature was, where the light was pointed, everything. And I just hated it all. Ten hours spent. I hated it all. Then something occurred to me. I used a wider lens. And then that's when I fell into That's why I started, like, being obsessed with using wider lenses because I was like, there's something about this that's better for me. 
it just does something and that's what started it the the wide lens use lately um i've been lately loving the tokina 11 to 20 um 2.8 f 2.8 um atxi uh, it's the photography version i've thought about getting the sim version but I, I i like the photography version right now and i have a, a few of them for for so i can do multi-cam setups uh, especially in the next shorts i'm going to be, do, gonna be doing soon because uh, I, I like having uh, lately I've been debating whether I should do single camera or multi-camera but there's something about doing multi-camera where you can get authentic reactions and then you can kind of control it all like like a maestro you know or like a like a like a composer of a of a of an orchestra or you know you can capture one authentic performance all the way through from both angles and both both actors and but it's it's harder because you then have to comp you might have to compromise lighting or shots but I feel like it's worth doing that when so that you're not compromising the performance because it, when you're cutting into like you're cutting, you're cutting two different performances together sometimes it doesn't work as well as cutting together the same performance but from two angles there's something about that i don't know it's been something i've been exploring lately um but yeah, uh, location scan, bring a camera or phone app, uh, review your photos and pick better frames, review, rework, rework, work, rework. So uh, sometimes I find a location, I go with longer hook lengths. Then when I review them later, I hate them. I I've found sometimes that the solution for me is a wider focal length. Um, I think Kubrick, you know, he had a, a thing that he said that he learned early on in photography. Sometimes you have to learn how to take a picture of a picture. And what I think he meant was, you want to, you know, some people will take a picture of this or, you know, you take a picture of me, right? Back it up or even not even this. This is this is just the picture. We should even go wider than this. What you're seeing right now. Um, Especially if there's like two actors here, you know, you know, if, or if there's two of like there's somebody else here. We're talking with me. You know, you want to have a two shot versus a one shot. You know, give the audience the opportunity to choose what they're looking at. Give the opportunity, give the audience the opportunity to decide what they think of what you're making. You know, it's the same reason I don't really use music that much lately is I, I like letting the audience choose what to think. You know, if you're telling, if you're making music for the film, you know, um, and there's other reasons why it's interesting to edit or cut without music. And I'll get into that. But, um, when once you figure out the framing of each shot and you, you pick good frames that you like, figure out on location and like like figure out a strategy for the the lighting, um, and 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 test it in different environments. Test the lights setups you have before you go to do the shoot. Um, if you can't do it at the location, if you can, that'd be great. That's ideal. Um, just to see what your lights and your your shooting plan, your light strategy looks in that environment. You can, you can test it real time and make it work real time. Um, uh, you know, lately, uh, my favorite lights have been the Aperture 300X, the Amaran 200X uh, on spot and spotlights and China balls. Uh, I, I've been using a lot of these different lights. Uh, I mean, I probably am not going to talk about anything new with in terms of lighting, but um, I've always used these like six six the uh, six hundred sixty LED RGB. Uh, newer lights that I light panels that I've been using for years. Um, honestly, I love I, I over them. I love these like the Amaran 200X is a 
fucking great light. Um, they're super light, super like a great out light output. So if you're looking for like a low budget light, I would highly urge people look into the Amaran 200X or, or the Amaran line because they're, they're, they're affordable lights that, that have great light output and they're very light to work with. Um, the only thing is they don't have battery power um, like the 200X, the 300X does when you have uh, V mounts, but the V mounts don't really last very long. You have two on there firing it at full blast or 80% and it'll or eight or 50 percent or 60 or 80 percent will last like an hour well on two v mounts of, of 190 watt hours each um and that's that's not long at all like i we shot this scene for this most recent sketch where i didn't realize that it turned off because we've been shooting that scene for an hour and and um like an hour just went by and and we forgot that it turned off we, we must have been talking about something and i'm going back and reshooting it um but i don't know yeah but uh yeah, I mean, it's. I mean, these. I mean, I'm not going to be talking anything about anything new. If you want to learn about lighting and stuff, you know, I, I recommend going on sets, working on sets, working with people, watching videos on the on YouTube, and you know, learning about it that way. Listening to like Roger Deakins, all these different things, and and figure out what works for you. And it's really there's no set way of doing it. Um, but, and I I discussed no one's tenant DP. Also, they did the way that they shot. Full Metal Jacket was similar to Tenet's deep, like like a Christopher Nolan's most recent DP cinematographer, in that they they lit the set and then and shot it so it felt like a documentary a little bit. Um, so that was same with Full Metal Jacket. They shot they they lit the space, not the the shots. Um, or they lit the scene, not the shots. Um, also on location, when you have your shots and lighting strategy loosely figured out, record a video note on your phone or, or your iPad or whatever, and to yourself to relook at later on set really quickly or your camera. Yeah. Like I, I or I especially like doing that with like an iPad or a phone. Like I'll, I'll, I, once I am on location, location scouting, I have a plan for everything I want to do. I'll create like a really quick video of me walking around the set, showing myself references of everything as wide of focal length as I can on the phone or something. And basically say, this is what I'm, this is what the shots are. This is, you know, this little, we can hide this light over here, point it there. This is where the shadows can come from all these different, all everything I can think of and basically have it all there. And then it's all baked into my memory. But if I want to check it, I can go look back. And sometimes it can save me because I'm like, wait, do I have a, is there something I can fit there or what, what was there? Cause you might not remember exactly what the set looked like and you, you can go back and look and sometimes it, it's in there. Sometimes if you're lucky, you, you actually filmed it. If you're just waving your fucking camera around everywhere. So, uh, that, that's something that can be really helpful. Um, so, and then you on set, you can readdress it and look back at it. Logistics, uh, figure out as much as you can before the shoots, you learn as much as, and, and, and you'll learn more as you make more films what are the best logistics to focus on and, and identify um how much time we have okay sorry i'm just checking the time um so rehearsal some people vouch for them some people like not rehearsing the capture magic on set of the day of by shooting the rehearsal by shooting the rehearsal quote unquote from my experience there's no right or wrong way to do it but there's an expensive risky way and the less expensive way that is also less stressful and that second way is rehearsing ahead of time much ahead of uh much ahead of time uh you might think that you cast the right actors but even then you might 
you you might show up and see their first performance of the scene and think we have some work to do that would take that could take that 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 work could take 10 minutes or 5 hours why not do that when you don't have uh, an entire crew location or equipment package etc on payroll or you're just wasting people's time don't waste people's time uh do it when you just have the actors um so you're not wasting your time you're working with them um, you'll save money, mitigate pig problems, or and not, and most of all, not waste people's time. Um, but if you have the money uh, and you and time to spend on set to do what you want, uh, you know, to spend on set, do what you want. Um, but personally, I like doing this work ahead of the shoot so that the shoot runs smoother, and we can also do a lot more work on the performances. If a line isn't working, I can work with the actor to find out what will make it work. Sometimes smaller, like one minute shoots, things that are low, you know, low stress, you don't need to do a rehearsal for them. But if it's like a very involved performance with a lot of different moving parts, you, I think I generally want to stick to doing rehearsals, especially if it's, there's a lot at stake, you know, like you feel like there's going to be so many moving parts the day that you shoot that, that you, you know, it would help to just get a good rehearsal. And also rehearsing it would help get the actors to a point where they can go through it fast and and go through it naturally probably um and you can kind of work with them on that and doing rehearsal is nice because you're just focused on you and the actors it's just you guys there's no stress of the of the shoot there is some stress of it being a rehearsal you don't want to waste people's time but you don't have the stress of the production because sometimes that can literally choke out the ability to to direct the actors or not and and you have to gauge that yourself you have to decide that for yourself what is the best route for you Sometimes, or in most cases, you might want to just not rehearse um, because you might want to just get what you get on the set. It's up to you. You got to figure it out. Um, I, I mentioned Judith Weston's book, Directing Actors. I'm, I like it if you do it like for like a, few, a short film or two, just to kind of learn what directions are actionable. Um, um, but then at, at some point, I, I might, I think I'll probably in the future just be throwing it away. Just focus on, I, I mean, I, in the future, projects i think i i've learned enough from it um that i might not use it again um i don't know but most likely probably not um because i feel like i'd never heard of any directors that use it so why would why would it why would i need to use it i mean i i mean i think it's one it's one of those things where you ask you have to ask yourself is this something that is commonly used and if not why are you using it? Maybe it's not something that really matters. Maybe it's something you're putting too much weight on. I mean, it, it is helpful to learn things for the first time and see, okay, this is an actionable direction. This isn't one. And then from there, you can kind of go from, okay, I've kind of got that down, down pat. And now I can come up with actionable directions on the spot based on my initial intent, like impressions of the script and not overanalyze things and overdirect things which is what happened to me recently so and that led a comedy to being a stiff drama which is terrible um i'll probably be doing a bts documentary about it um because i have a bunch of bts footage from both shoots <laughs> so uh but yeah ah uh so you'll save money but personally i like doing the work ahead of the shoot so that you shoot runs smoother and so we can do a lot more work on performance of the line isn't blah, blah, blah. okay it's julia weston's books it's a great resource sorry i'm rereading this to make sure i get um also uh there is a single best performance so you can find the best ver versions of them whatever um i don't know if that i don't know what i mean by that um also if you well i kind of know but i i 
I don't trust myself from when I wrote this. Uh, also, if you do the exercises, I think I talked adequately enough about, you know, how to do it. You know, I, no, you know, I, that's, this is, this screech just cries out as bullshit to me. What I wrote here, there isn't a, a best performance, but that you can find one of the best. What the fuck does that mean? Honestly, I feel like, I feel like anytime you're having the actors just play it naturally is, is probably going to be the better route in most cases. Oh, uh, I don't know. Well, I'll, things I talked about before, um, if you remember, but, uh, anyway, let, let's move on. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, so let's see. Honestly, if you do the exercises in the book, put, put the work, work in the time, you know, I want to skip ahead on that. Um, uh, time and money I'll save on the shooting day. Uh, also if you can rehearse on location or the closest you can get it, uh, because then the actors can build the life of the characters based on the lo that location, or so I'm told. I heard that from Tarkovsky. I don't know if I completely buy that. I just rehearse somewhere. It doesn't matter. Um, uh, or if you want it to matter, it matters. Um, uh, but also, actors are taught sometimes to develop a sense of place wherever they're at. So it may not be critical. But then again, I don't know. Uh, so I talked about what went wrong recently with a short I did, um, and I'm trying to just work out the kinks. Um, I talked about the grounded Dustin Hoffman inspired improv exercise leading in approach I, I plan to do and to, to take the next directing, well, take next with uh, directing actors. Um, I plan not to be acting so much in future projects just so I can see what I can do as the director solely. Um, and trying to get the actors to subtle performances that feel like normal people. Maybe that's the route. Maybe it's not. Maybe going the route of absurd characters in absurd situations is the route. And not normal characters in absurd situations. I don't know. These are things I'm trying to figure out. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm like speeding through these things because I'm trying to like edit as I go. I apologize for that. Um, but yeah, you want to get them talking. To, I think I want to get people talking to each other as they talk in real life um not overly dramatic and contrived um but i'm gonna try things i'm gonna figure out what works um marketing and funding um to be honest i don't know a whole lot about this and i'm still learning but i'm told you have to put yourself in a position where you have to sell the rights to your work or open yourself up to being fired from your own work uh in order to get it in order to get distribution or funding I think if you've done the amount of work I've told you about these ways of thinking just seem it's, it's just not an option. Like I just, I just, I don't think it's an option to allow myself to be put in a position where if somebody doesn't like me and they paid for you know, the production or something that they just want to fire me. Uh, and I heard that's rare. That doesn't really happen, but it's like, uh, it's, I don't, I, I, I honestly would rather be making my own films under my within my own means instead of risking years of my life being stripped away from me so that you know just because of a stupid situation or like just because like I I allowed that like like that kind of position I don't know I'm not sure my position on this um there's got to be some kind of contract where you can make that you can make with a company or, or a distributor or somebody that makes your movie or make movies yourself and look to do licensing, licensing agreements with distributors. Maybe, you know, that's a thing with the products is licensing agreements, creating a product, you know, having an invention, patenting it, and then, you know, going to, you know, say, look, if you 
create and sell this product, um, you know, I'll get a certain cut, but you'll get a majority of the cut so that you, you know, to, you know, make money off of your investment and all the upfront costs that you have to put into it and, and distribution and production. But you're making the movie yourself within your own means and you, if you make it well enough, um, why can't you do a licensing agreement then and get your film, if it's good enough, to go global and somebody pay you, you know, a fee and you can have it for like a, a you know, and, and maybe and maybe after a certain point, be able to get rights back to distributing your film yourself, which I think I might want to do. I haven't fully figured this out. Um, at least future projects, I know. Uh, I want to be able to have rights to distribute my film myself, um, possibly, so that I can possibly create my own distribution platform. I don't know what it is, but that's a thought I've had. Um, and then I can help other filmmakers be the distributor for other people's films that I like. Uh, for me, I don't want to be... Uh, wait, so let me check. Yeah. For me, I don't want to be a writer. I want to make great films, not great screenplays. And there's a difference. So the idea I could be fired for my films and someone else could make them is not an option for me. I, it just, I, I, it's not worth it for me. I'd rather make films that make no money than not make movies that I believe in. And that, that could happen, which is why I explore multiple avenues of making revenue or money other than just my films. Um, I care about filmography, not films. In order for me to make greater films uh, in the future, I, I need to, well, I care about my films, but I care about filmography too. In order to make greater films in the future, I need to make the best films I can make today. Sketches aren't films for me, or, well, they're starting to become films. And that learning process of doing those little small shorts uh, or sketches, um, I think they're probably shorts now at this point, the way I, how involved I'm getting with them. That learning process would be stunted by someone. Uh, also, the learning process of, uh, would be stunted if I get taken off of a big project of mine before it's finished. But then again, um, you know, because, you know, as you're like I mentioned previously in the creativity section that what you learn later in the process informs the early sections of the process when you go to make another film next time around that gets stunted if you again get taken off of a big project you've been working on for years but then again david fincher had a really crap experience on alien 3 and he had an incredible turnaround and has made incredible films since so many amazing films it's just uh, incredible and and so i could be wrong in that maybe that's something that helps you if you have a really negative experience uh, it depends how you come back at it sometimes you win sometimes you learn um let me see how much further we got. Okay. So more money, um, <laughs> more money isn't always the answer for making better films. If you've, if you're given more money, I've heard you're then supposed to find a way to spend it to make the movie better, which is absurd, but it is in fact some cases, or it's, it's in certain cases true. You should, or the client will give that money to someone who is willing to spend it to get the most results. Or somebody said that to me, uh, right I, that was i heard that somewhere um the caveat to that statement that your goal should be to maximize your mental bandwidth on set as a director or the caveat to you know money doesn't always make 
for better films. The caveat is that your goal should be to maximize your mental bandwidth as, on set as a director, which is why multiple jobs such as acting, directing, or DPing and directing is a bad idea. Well, I don't know about DPing and directing still. No, I, I feel like I've changed my stance on that since writing this. And why having more money can help the project. So figure out the most you can ahead of time. You can ahead of time. Um, time is your most valuable resource when you don't have much money to make films. Um, I, I, like I said, uh, acting and directing and DPing is really tough, um, but I've done it. Um, yeah, it's a lot of setting and, and forgetting it. But when you're acting, you can't actively engage with the other actors and steer the performance and know where it's going because you're in the scene. You just can't. But when you DP and direct, I feel like uh, I'm, I'm enjoying that. I'm actually just really loving that lately um i'm okay with doing cinematography on my films i write and direct as long as it doesn't interfere with the quality of the other elements of the film that that uh, that the directing is supposed to be mindful of i.e the bigger picture the performances set design all sorts of stuff if i do rehearsal and pre-shoot practice and planning and and what i've laid out so far this can mitigate these pitfalls like choosing the framing all the lighting strategy all the things i figure out ahead of time before the shoot day happens for everything about how I'm going to shoot it and how I'm going to light it and everything and how I'm going to get, capture the sound. All of that is, you know, that that saves me time to work with actors, to, to work on, you know, getting what we're after. Um, and, and it helps me set up things faster. Um, if the best cinematographer I can get can't do as good a job or better as me with, with, a cinemato- with cinematography, then while, then while I'm letting... Well, that's letting me focus on the bigger picture and have a mental faculty to work with the actors, right? Then, then it's best to, that I do the cinematography. It's like if if I can't afford a cinematographer to do the job I I'm hoping them to do, I honestly it might just be fine for me to just DP my next feature film. I'm thinking about it. Like I honestly I even but you know what? Fuck that. Like I I don't know. Like there's so many great cinematographers I know probably do a great a, a better job than me. But I, I just fucking love doing it. I, I enjoy it. And I love learning and getting better at it. So honestly, I could probably do better, make a, you know, make a better film with a better cinematographer than myself. I don't know if I could afford their rate. Um, but the thing is, I, I do enjoy this process. And I'm getting better at it and I love it. And, and uh, I know my style. I know the way I want to work per each film down to a millisecond because I am me. I know me. And that style might change on a dime um, based on something I've learned that is really impactful. And, you know, it might come from an experience of I didn't like shooting it this way. I want to shoot it this way. Um, and, you know, I'm, 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 I feel like I've been a pretty good, good judge of that. And I, I plan to shoot as many things as I can be cinematographer on as many projects as I can before my feature film so that I can really cut my teeth on, on, on in terms of doing this, doing it right and doing it well. And, and being able to also learn how to be a good director while I'm being a cinematographer. A lot of times it's setting it and forgetting it. It's a lot of, a lot of times it's, it's setting up, it's doing, using tripod shots a lot because when you use tripod shots, you're not, if you're, if you're hand holding, holding stuff, you're, you know, you're, you're occupying your brain and your, your mental faculties so much that you should be spending on directing. Um, but yeah, like if I, if I don't have the budget, honestly, I think I could, the best I'll, I could do is with with myself as the cinematographer. But I, I, I honestly, fuck that. I really just like doing it. I'm having a lot of fun with it. Um, so I could, but I could probably find a great cinematographer, but I'm just, I'm just having fun. Um, 
if I can afford to hire the right cinematographer and keep the budget under a certain amount, which without cutting corners elsewhere, then I probably, I consider it. It's a possibility. Um, but I'm having so much fun. <laughs> uh, so a lot of this I've, I've rewritten, but yeah. So the first 90 minute rule from Werner Herzog, um, I don't always succeed at this, but whenever I, I don't start shooting within the first 90 minutes, uh, like he mentions, we almost always go over schedule and there's some truth to this. I think aim to start shooting within the first 90 minutes of showing up of the crew showing up on set. Cause then everybody feels like it's not sluggish. It's, it's, you know, if you, if you go over the, if you start after the first 90 minutes or like several hours into shooting or like setting up like rusty spade that happened, happened because there was so much setup and planning and rehearsing ahead of time that we had to re-rehearse some things uh, with a new like location and the blocking. Um, you know, that just, it's, you it sucks but like it's true if you don't start shooting in the first 90 minutes everybody starts to kind of slow down and i think there's some truth to that um the last sketch last time i shot something was that sketch that we reshot the second time and we we did start shooting in the first 90 minutes technically uh i started recording <laughs> i was like hi guys i gotta start we're like a one minute away from the 90 minute mark. And I did. And, and, but everything was already set up at that point. Like I set everything up before anybody showed up. So, but I was still like doing just so occupied doing so many things at once still, even when everything was all set up. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's busy. Um, but yeah, so, but if you can do that, your set generally runs smoother. And I felt that was true with feeding the fire. When we did the, the theater shoot, we did it all in four hours and then, we got the first the first scene in the, the the hallway done, and then we had ten or twenty minutes to shoot the the scene in the theater, and we cranked it out like just and it was probably the best scene somehow. I don't know how. I think it was just because you know it was just one of those cases of, you know, we we just improvised a lot. We just tried a lot of things, and it was a single camera though. But it was and it was crazy how it's just called kind of stitched together well. And we only had 10, 20 minutes, 10, 10 minutes, not even. It was, it was a heck of a fucking moment there. Um, yeah. Um, also I've started, I, I, I may or may not do this walkthroughs at the beginning of the day with people, at least with cinematographer, if I have a cinematographer of all the shots we're getting, uh, it may help with the crew so that they can know what the lighting setups are or not. This is probably, this might just be a waste of time. Um, using my hands and my eyeballs to give them a reference of the frame. This is what shot we're doing. Then we're going to cut to this shot, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I like involving the crew. I like giving people an idea, walking them through it in person, showing this is what we're going to do today, blah, blah, blah. But it does take time, and I'm not sure if it's always practical unless I have a cinematographer. Um, but that way, the during the shoot, they have some idea of what we were doing so they can contribute ideas. And that's why I like doing it is so that people can contribute ideas to what we are doing. Um, I'm a big fan of that. Honestly, like my one of my, my favorite filmmakers, Tarkovsky, I mentioned his, he's a big proponent. He was a big proponent of, of involving everybody as a family and filmmaking, you know, everybody in the film is a family and living together and contributing ideas. It's not, it's a group effort. It's not, a like the idea of the auteur theory is not entirely true, but I think you do need somebody with a, a vision for the script and who can be the arbiter of is that a good idea or not? Like, like who can say, all right, I like that idea. I like where you're going with that. But generally a lot of people come up with good ideas and you don't have to tell them no. Um, if, if you're just, if you're, if you're listening, you know, um, but you know, if, a, if a bad idea is, if an idea is not working, you know, give it a shot. If you have time, 
but like if it's not if it really isn't working it's like all right let's, we, at least you tried it um well if you have time <laughs> like don't be trying everything okay um yeah um oh man i'm burning out i gotta get through this uh let's see okay oh, we're almost there okay um also i've found it helpful to do a light rehearsal like a once through with the, the actors before shooting um it helps me helps the actors we, we just go through the entire thing all the all the scenes that we're going to shoot that day they just rehearse it they walk through it all and uh it helps with the crew too they can see it for themselves usually once through and also block it on the location if we rehearse to a separate location um how david lynch refers to production like crossing a bridge made of glass then when you get to the other side it turns to steel when you're making when you have a shooting day that's so true like like it feels like you're on a glass bridge and it could break at any moment so you're being very careful and then you get across it turns to it it turns to fucking steel and it's like oh it was nothing but it wasn't nothing it felt like it would break at any moment and it, it could have i think that's a really good analogy that's how it feels um how I edit, uh, there's a book called In the Blink of an Eye by Walter Murch. Um, I cut by the blink or cut four frames ahead of the blink point and I stand up and edit. Uh, basically, um, there's this philosophy of whenever, you know, when, when we cut, why is it that when we watch films, we see a cut when when the first cut was presented in, in the first, like, like whatever, the first films, that were made why is it that people didn't get up out of their seats and cry out at how unnatural that thing is that what is that that was a cut what the fuck was that shit why does it work there's something organic and natural about a cut and walter murch's philosophy and he, he's direct he no he's edited like apocalypse now he edited godfather part two the conversation so many great films and he in his book in the blink of an eye the philosophy presents is that the reason why a cut seems natural is we see it in nature like like the reason why would it why wouldn't it feel natural is because if we had ever saw it in anywhere in nature during the course of evolution when we first saw one for the first time we should have shuddered at it we should have shouted at it we we, we shouldn't have wanted to acknowledge it but it because it feels normal it feels if authentic it feels natural it feels real organic i don't know it it's because we do experience cuts in everyday life. Every time you blink, that's a cut. Every time I blink, if I if I move my eyes, a lot of times, if I move my eyes from here to there, oh sorry, if I move my eyes, I blink when I move my eyes. So like I'm I I close my eyes right before I move them, and I cut I open them up, and I'm over my eyes are looking over there. That's a cut. That's a cut in real life. And so that's why they feel authentic. And so. And the best moments of when to cut are when you're editing and you're watching the footage is when you blink. And there's, depending on the, the editing system you're using, there's, you got to look into it, uh, the key bindings, but you often set up the key binding yourself. But I think in Premiere, it's the star symbol on the number pad. And it's also, and in, and in DaVinci Resolve, for me, it's, it, it, for, it's, it's the, it's the M stands for mark when you click on the timeline on either um and you you're watching the footage sometimes it, you can click on the track and then create marks in the track itself and you know every time you blink you press that key you know i'm blinking 
blink, blink. Okay. I've just, I've watched through the footage, watching it as a viewer. Blink. I blink here. Blink. I'm, I'm just, I'm clicking the, the button every time I, I feel myself automatically blink. And sometimes you can force yourself to feel like you're blinking at a point. And it's sometimes it works, you know? So you, you can, but it helps you create a organic limitation of when the cut should happen. I mentioned limitations a million times. This is a this is what I felt like was an organic limitation that helps you find the idea of when to cut. Um, that that seems it's it, and it's rooted in something natural in nature. It's it's something rooted in a, a real philosophy that, that makes sense. When we blink is such a primitive thing. It's been around since thousands of years i don't even know how long millions of years probably um i think um <laughs> i mean from many different species blink you know i so yeah and 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 so also the idea of, of a blink is that it's a it's a new thought blinking it represents a new thought happening so when you're talking to somebody you're listening you're having new thoughts constantly i mentioned the adult brain when they're listening to somebody they're moving around they're blinking a lot those are new thoughts every time sometimes a new breath is a new thought i've heard um but when you blink yeah that's a new thought every time and and so i i cut him the blink point and he mentions cutting sooner than the blink so that it feels exciting i personally like cutting four frames ahead of when i blink um, I find that that really works in most or all cases for me. Um, also, lately, my fastest... Also, I edit standing up because it just feels like I'm grounded. I don't feel restless. Uh, my ADHD used to just drive me nuts when I was sitting down editing. I didn't realize it until I started standing up and editing. So those are things I learned from Walter Murch's book. Also, lately, my fastest process for editing is I sync all... I, I'll go through... A, I'll have a timeline created... And I'll have time like a, t a track for every single audio track that I have recorded from all the different lav mics. I use DR10L lav mics, Tascam DR10L lav mics. I use two Zoom H5s with the SSH6 uh, shotgun mount uh, module. Um, I honestly have started just using the lav mics, and the, the shotgun mics are backup um, in case the lav mics fail. Um, but usually, I always check. I have my actors always check lately that they're recording. It's it's a time-consuming process, though, because often I end up with, like, nine tracks of audio that I have to sync up manually for every take, which is driving me fucking nuts. Um, I need to fucking figure that out. I probably need to invest in, like, audio, actual audio equipment that is all, like, like it's all rooted together. It's all, like, synced together automatically because it's recording from one thing. That would probably make my life easier. But once I get all that synced up and uh, to the to the, the to the footage that I know I'm going to probably be using, a lot of times I, I shoot long takes because I know that it's going to save me time in the editing. Um, I'll uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, so I sync up all the footage around the timeline, then go through and select which to use, which parts of the footage are the best takes from the from the performances. Um, I'll do a light base grade. Um, Audio plugins is I use the Era Five or Four bundle, and um, and it has a several different you know plugins that you can use in DaVinci Resolve or Premiere. And what it does is I like the noise canceling. 
I put that down like as the first thing that it, the, the the sound passes through for the, the main bus uh, audio uh, channel. And I have it cranked up to whatever it needs to be, probably sometimes 60%, 70 lately, um, which can sometimes distort the audio a bit. But then off after that, I have a voice leveler. Um, I don't really tweak it that much. I keep it at 40% usually. And it's very simple. It's very straightforward. I just, I've been doing that recently. And for some reason, people have liked the sound of my f projects more than before. I, and it saves me so much time. I'm not manually going through and, and adjusting the audio levels for each thing. Now I'll have to, for certain things, if something's blown out. Um, now when I, I sync all the tracks together, I have backup chan channels for all the lab mics. And that's why there's nine fucking, um, sound, like soundtracks and, and the, the backup levels are there just so if I need them, I, I have them all synced up as well. Um, and also they, it's harder to tell where the clap or the clapper is on the, the main lav channel than it is on the backup channel because the backup channel is so much lower and, and it's not, you, you see the spike easier. Um, I apologize if this information is very like, it's, it's hard to understand if you're not visualizing it. So I'll get through this really quickly. Um, let's see, uh, yeah, light base grade, audio plugins, noise cancellation, blah, blah, blah. And then, and then I'll, I'll cut it together as well as I can and then disable all the sound layers. And then I'll just turn on the sound at the points when a person's talking. And it sounds pretty good. Like it's like the microphone generally that is closest to the actor talking or the, the microphone is capturing the actors talking at the moment, you know, just turn those on. Sometimes it's just lab mics. And um, that's been my process recently. Uh, I might be doing that for my future film. I might not be so that I can save time. I might invest in actual decent audio equipment or more decent of audio equipment. But these are pretty good. Um, but yeah, so it's, yeah, it is a pain to manually uh, line up the, the audio tracks though. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, also Editing, I edit without music or temp music, unless a scene requires me to cut the music. Usually that's only for wedding videos or something. Um, but I'll use, I'll use, uh, what is it? I'll use a uh, temp music. No, I won't use music. Honestly, lately I haven't been editing with music. Like I, I and I also heard from Nolan that like, like, uh, like in a Nolan interview that they don't edit to music until that the film is finished. And then they start bringing in music when the film is cut. And it's solid. Then he starts bringing music. And I, I, I didn't know that, but I've realized that's true for me before I heard that because, and what he, the way he put it is, um, you know, you can think that this, this pause is really artistic, but then, but if there's music on top, if you take the music away, you realize that artistic pause is really just boring and it's better to just, you know cut it so that it works without music. If you if you can get something working well without music, so somebody so somebody enjoys your film without any music at all. Adding music it just, you know, it could either add to it or honestly it might not. Um lately I've been just like questioning whether music is important because honestly like it just and this partly comes from Tarkovsky because he believed that like a if a, a truly great film doesn't need music. And I'm trying, to, I'm trying to do that to lean towards that, but maybe I'm forcing it a bit. Um, but it's this idea that like, you know, you, 
you want to allow the audience to choose what they think. And if your music generally tells people what to think and feel, I feel. And, you know, if I'm telling people what to feel, I'm not giving them the, the, the freedom to pick what they think and feel. And I'm giving, I'm kind of stripping them of, of their ability to make their own sense of what they're seeing. And I'm telling them what they're, what they should think about it. And that's why I haven't lately been using music is I'm, I'm, exp I'm, I'm interested in exploring, not using it. And I've found some success with it. I've found, I generally enjoy when it's done well without music. Um, I did it with Rusty Spade for the first time. And then I realized because, and I didn't go with music because I realized, what do I add to it? It's like, it's such a film where people need to like watch it and experience it and come to their own conclusions about it. And that was when I started realizing that's, that's, that's a, process i kind of like now bluntness versus kindness on set try to be kind but let people know going in that you might have to be blunt at times with them at moments where, where you know you're running out of time or because you're you know you're worn thin mentally by the production and you may not have the capacity to be as kind as you want to be it happens that just it's that's just something i was talking about with uh, like uh kevin austra and i was realizing yeah like we when you're directing like this happened on my rusty spade for me. Like I just was so stressed. And I mean, I didn't, I wasn't, I don't think I was mean, but I was, I had to be blunt with people. I was like, Hey dude, you're in the shot. Like you, you got to get out of the shot. Like you just got, like, I just like, I, I like you just got to be honest with people. And sometimes honesty can be construed as rudeness to people and it can offend people. Um, but you just, that's just how it is. Like when you're so fucking stressed out from everything and I, but it's important to, if you're, if you realize you were rude or you felt like you're being rude, immediately apologize. Say, Hey, look, I don't mean to be rude. You know, I, I do this a lot. Like, uh, if I feel like I'm being bossy, especially I hate being bossy. Um, but I, I, they tell people, look, um, I know I sound like a dick right now and I'm trying not to be, and it's just, it's just the, 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 the fucking stress of it all and just trying to make sure we get it so that when i'm in the editing room i don't realize oh i'm fucked you know so just make sure you're not in the shot or just you know make sure you know you're not making that sound that's gonna fuck me later you know it's it's and it's being that's being blunt but like when you're in the moment and so many fucking things are going on that's all you can fucking say sometimes that's just all that's all that comes out like i it's just physically it feels physically impossible at times sometimes just to to be anything different than that and you got a lot of people, it's, I think it's a good idea to let people know that ahead of time. So if, if they don't know that, but a lot of people generally understand that, um, that I've worked with and I'm, I'm grateful for that. Um, so they, they're like super supportive of the process. Um, but don't use that as an excuse to be a dick. Don't it's, it's not an excuse. And I don't want it to sound like one. Uh, so closing, yay, we're here. <laughs> so, uh, create don't interpret uh, a friend of mine mentioned that on the podcast recently uh i think cameron noble brannigan was referencing uh um what's his name uh willem defoe create don't interpret i used to care or take it personally whenever i i got a low amount of likes or on a post or views or or the fact that or on a video or the fact that i don't have as many subscribers or followers and i thought i need to be doing something different in order to get more or grow or what should i change about my work to make it better but recently I've realized it's probably none of that. The way you grow and get lots of followers is the algorithms of these social media sites or YouTube push your content for you because they know what your audience looks like. And it only knows what your audience looks like when it has a large enough sample size, probably thousands of people 
then it'll know who likes your content and who to put it out to. So don't take it personally if you only have five or 50 or 100 something followers or subscribers and you only get so many likes or views. Uh, it doesn't mean you're bad or that you won't go anywhere or succeed. It's because the algorithms just don't know you well enough yet. And that's where I'm at right now or my films suck. <laughs> No, um, but regardless, you should be you should create, not interpret. Don't try to make things because you think others want to see it. I mean, make films that you want to see, that you know people close to you that you whose aesthetic you like want to see, but mainly that you want to see. And if you know deep down that you like what you have or are working on, then trust your instincts, your gut. You are probably right, and the world doesn't know it yet. But that doesn't mean don't subject yourself to feedback and listen to what others think of your work and, and, and get feedback on feedback because they might offer solutions to make your work better for not only the audience, but also better for you. You might really like ideas better than some ideas that you have. Um, it, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a platter. It's a, it's, a tr it's a thing you can choose from. You know, it's a buffet. <laughs> it's a buffet of ideas, um, <laughs> which is what matters. Keep trying to improve. It's uh, only it's better, but also better for you, which is what matters. Keep trying to improve, and as long as you don't give up on what on that and stay true to the films you want to make, I think one day you'll succeed. Believe that. I, I believe that. I believe that I will succeed at this one day. Knock on wood. Open-ended question-based writing and creativity is a powerful weapon that can be utilized or used to create ideas out of thin air and find solutions to hard problems. It can literally be used to overcome feelings for things and people. It can it can assess your fears, your your wants, your desires. It can it can it can writing is a tool to you know reapproach life and 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 change the way turn off you know things you know you know, the turn off bad tape loops that are not true in your brain. Um, if you, you know, oh, let me, sorry, I'm losing my place. Um, you can identify and acknowledge things that you feel and, and, and approach them realistically. Um, like fears, uh, like I mentioned fears, they're all things that could, go, or you could think of all the things that could go wrong, write them all down and, and, and then kind of, come back to it and and then assess realistically how could you mitigate those things that could possibly happen that you fear so that you can figure out a strategy a course of action to go through something that you fear doing and come out and come out victorious and come out with it being successful uh, and a lot of that is in filmmaking that's the case with filmmaking um you can think of yeah and, and also there's so many applications of writing uh, that you can they can be used to change your life and, and use them to make better films as well. Um, my dream is to one day be in the same category as Quentin Tarantino and Christopher Nolan or Andre Tarkovsky. I don't know. That'd be great. Uh, I mean, not to be revered, but to be understood. Uh, I want to, and th this is a dream, you know, it might not ever happen, but I'm going to work towards it. I want to be what, to others what these filmmakers are to me I, I want to make films that audience members want to watch more than once and still enjoy after the second third fourth or even fifth viewing hopefully that'd be great there's something intimate about that watching a filmmaker's work multiple times and still enjoying it you feel like you understand them and that's what i want is to for people to understand me that's also why i 
also plan to have a podcast so that people can understand me even better and my process. And if somebody likes my films, they can learn from me exact, exactly what I did to create that effect in them. Like this, like by this episode, you know, um, and, and maybe some people will be able to do certain things. I try to do better than I can do it. And then I can learn from them. Um, so I don't mind sharing my process because I hope that somebody out there can do it better than me and that I can learn from them and I can be like, Oh, that's a good idea. I'm going to try that. Um, and make it my own thing. Just like they made my thing, their own thing. Um, if that makes sense. <laughs> so a lot of guests, when I ask them what matters most to them, mention leaving behind some kind of mark or a legacy with their work, that they have some need to be remembered. And I, I do think about that. There's always been a part of me that cares about that. But over the years, it's less and less, especially because of books like Meditations by Marcus Aurelius and the Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu some of my favorite books um, that I listen to on audiobook a lot. Uh, I, I still I still want to do great work, but there's a part of me now that says, even if I die with the best still in me and it never gets manifested, as long as I did my best to manifest it, that's what matters most. It doesn't matter to me that people know about me or remember me for thousands of years or even just a few days. What matters is that I created my best work, that I did my best and yes, I just said I want to be understood to be this great filmmaker, like uh, my favorite filmmakers, Tarantino, Nolan, or Tarkovsky, you know. But that's a dream. That's my dream. And I can have my own dreams, you know, just like you can too. And what I truly value most, but what I truly value most is that, that I did my best to get there. I did my best with what I have. Whether I succeed or not is up to God and fate as long as I do my best. And I do my best for the people around me. Uh, thinking this way is hard. It takes discipline and requires you actively rethink and reframe things in this light. But as, long, as a result of doing this, I suffer less and less from this existential dread that inevitably comes from this worry whether people give a shit. Because nobody gives a, a shit. Who, who, who the hell cares whether people applaud your work now or later? All applause is just clapping of hands and praise is clapping of tongues, as Marcus Aurelius would say. And we just like it because that means we're less likely to be thrown out of the pack and into the wilderness or stoned to death during caveman times. It's behavior built from evolution. And at the end of the day, who cares? I try not to care. And I try not to take things personally. I just care that I'm in service of God and I do my best. And I'm in service of others around me and my friends, and my family, and my loved ones. If my dreams come true of being understood and being recognized as a great filmmaker who influences others in a positive way, that's great too, but it could be fleeting, so I try not to rest my happiness on it. Yes, I hope I'm successful enough so I can keep doing my best at this and, and continue, you know, spending my life making a living, making movies. Uh, but at the end of the day, ideally, I try to care about doing my best here and now to get there. And at the end of the day, that's what matters. And if I do my best, that's what makes me happy. I hope that some of this is helpful. If any of this was helpful to you, please tell a friend about this episode of the podcast, help them out, get this information to them. Uh, or respond to this, you know, comment, let me know what you think. If you have feedback, um, reach out maybe. Um, uh, 
And if a, a friend did point this out, this information out to you, this podcast, this episode, they recommended it to you. I think it's safe to say that they have your best interests in mind. They want to see you grow. They want to see you succeed and be happy in life. So appreciate them for this. And don't forget it. And thank you for listening to Tom Profit Take 15. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening or watching. Hope you enjoyed this podcast. For notes and links to things mentioned on the show, my films, the video version of the podcast, or select the clips from each episode, go to ProfitableProductions.com backslash podcast. Profitable is spelled like my name with two Fs, two Ts. Also, for updates on future episodes, follow me on Instagram at TomProfitTake and at Profitable Productions. Thanks again. Catch you on the next take.